My darling Patricia, I can see all my dreams in your eyes. Your smile is as gay as a bright summer day. You're much fairer than Aaron's blue skies. Oh, Patricia, my lovely Patricia. You could make all my dreaming come true. My heart is just drooling, Patricia, no fooling. I'm falling in love with you. Oh, Patricia, my darling, Patricia, I can see all my dreams in your eyes. Your smile is as gay as a bright summer day. You're much fairer than Aaron's blue skies. Oh, Patricia, my lovely Patricia, you could make all my dreaming come true. My heart is just drooling. Patricia, no fooling. I'm falling in love with you. Patricia, my lovely Patricia, you could make all my dreaming come true. My heart is just welcome to Skype. Active call, favorite text, text, Patricia, Sammy, Rayburn, Jim, Patricia, unread messages, Larry, Gas, John, Bill, Brad, applicate video, and call with send, I send with send, send, send. Shares, view, both renamed up, remove, add to lists, mark as unlock this, view old met, remove from icon, call unavailable. Ted and Patricia, let me call you back. We're having a little issue down in Texas, so make, you two stand by and just hang up, and I'll call you right back once Kim and I okay. figure oh. out the problem. So okay. I'll call you right okay, back. Okay, Alt page down, leaving menus, contacts, Bill Brad, active calls, Ron Bob, Bill Brad, John, Unread, Patricia, Jim, Rafer, Sammy, Patricia, Tetzel, Vet, Tetzel, Favorite, Selected, Patricia, Office, Bill Brad, Ted Sylvester, Alt page down, menu bar, Skype, Skype, leaving, search edit, search edit, search edit, Favorite, Tetzel, Tetzel, Patricia, Sammy, Ray from 
Jim Tate, Patricia from FL, Unread Messages, Larry Gap, John Gap, Bill Bragg, Bill Bragg 3, Online Favorite, 10 of 351.
any money, but she, she goes to see the doctor this week, and then her heart doctor, get approval. And so you know how it is. Once you have set the date for the surgery, depending on when they take you in, so then, um, so it, it could be several more months for sure, you know. Skype Bill Bragg is online. John Gassman, John Duckat, contacts John Gassman, Windows R, J, double S, one, seven, enter, JAWS context menu, option sub menu. Exit. Escape leaving menus, desk control one, alt tab, Skype trademark 28 one, con, unread, 
Patricia from FL Home, Unread Messages, Larry G- John, Bill Bragg, Bill Dot Bragg 3, online. And call button, Walton Hughes, oh, call the Bill Bragg, sent on Saturday, here. December 9th, 2017, I was playing uh, Christmas with the Rat Pack, is what was playing there. Well, let's see if it's uh, disconnect. Let me see. Disconnect it. Okay. All right. Active call, John, unread, Patricia from FL, Jim, Ray from Sammy, Patricia office this application. This line should send be working now. View pro, rename, remove, add the list, mark as a block list, view old, remove, hide, call, send us an invite to group, send us an group, call, view pro, Let's rename, dot, um, remove, from fake, rename, remove, from here. favorite, add the list, mark as a block list, view old, Remove uh, high convert calls up. Send us I haven't caught in such a long time. Send I don't SM, remember. Invite a group call. Enter. Leaving Let me menu. Just check Contacts, the second Patricia time. office. Phone Here. number favorite. And we should get Patricia here. Are we back? Yep. Kim and I are on the line. So we're going to get Ted. Okay. So, hold on. Hi, Kim. Hi, Patricia. How are you doing? Active call. Tetzel, I am doing tetzel, okay. Favorite. How about you? Select oh, favorites. not too bad. Trying to figure out what the heck's going tetzel on. Vester, Skype decided number, when favorite, it came in, it didn't see the, tetzel uh, number, the uh, number, tetzel sound card on the computer, message. so I had to reboot the computer. I don't invite know group, call, where it went or why I thought it wasn't enter, there, but it's menu, back now. So. Can, okay, <laughs> as long as you can retrieve it, that's good. That's good. Yeah. How is Bill yeah. doing? Oh, he's he's doing okay. He's um had a real bad headache. We were both oh, sick in right. bed there two days ago, and now he's well, you, feeling a little bit better, but he's doing pretty okay. good. <laughs> well, we have Ted so on, and uh, Ted, I want you to say hi to uh, Kim Bragg. She, she and her husband own the station down in Texas, and so uh, I want you to say hi to Kim. Kim, this is Colonel Ted Sylvester of Toys for Tots. So I know you always like to listen to when we have the Toys for Tots tot people oh, on. Oh, So. Hello, Kim. Very, very nice to meet you. Nice meeting you. Sorry for the squeal. I had to put the headsets too close to the microphone, <laughs> trying to get him oh. out. We, we had a little technical difficulty in Texas, everybody. So I had to, I had to call Kim downstairs. She was probably baking Christmas cookies. So I had to call her downstairs and to reboot the computer. <laughs> it's actually more like heating up a can of uh, spaghettios with meatballs <laughs> for my dinner. I've been so busy today. <laughs> Oh, no problem. Nice meeting you, Colonel, and you take care, you guys, and Merry Christmas. Thank you. Nice Merry meeting Christmas. you. Merry Christmas. Thank right, you. Everybody. Hey, it's Saturday, December the 9th. I mean, we Ted 
Patricia and I heard Patricia theme song. I'll play it later for everybody else. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Poor Ted went through the whole thing. No, <laughs> I was basically on the phone trying to fix what happened, what happened, what happened? Oh, oh. oh everything was gone, everything was gone. So we're here tonight. We're here, so you want to introduce our very special guest, our good friend? I certainly will, um, and many of our listeners will already know you, Ted. We are going to be talking with Colonel Ted Sylvester, who is U.S. Marine Corps retired, except there is no such thing as retiring from the Marine Corps, but we'll allow that. <laughs> I hope I have your title correct. You're Vice President of the Marine Toys for Tots Foundation. Is that correct? That sure is, Patricia, and uh, thank you so much for, for having me on tonight. Well, I am just so delighted, and Walden is too, that you're able to join us again. We, you know how much we love Toys for Tots, so it's just, it's a real joy for us to be able to talk about it. And happy anniversary! Tell us about that. Yes, uh, this year is is the seventieth year of the Toys for Tots program. So it's uh, it's been 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 around for for quite a while, and our, our Marines have. Uh, have uh, have really uh, done an incredible job year after year and and uh, 70, 70 years strong this year. That is so cool. You have gone from tiny in nineteen forty seven to really huge this year. Would you talk a little bit about the the journey from forty seven to today? Oh yeah, I'd be happy to. It, it uh, and just like you said, it all all started in nineteen forty seven as uh, the brainchild of of. Uh, Reserve uh, Marine Major Bill Hendricks. Um, it was uh, shortly after World War II, and, and his wife Diane uh, uh, had hand knitted uh, a couple of dolls and asked Bill to find an organization where they could distribute those to orphan children. <clears throat> so he he went about and uh, uh, came back after after hitting the streets there a little bit and uh, had to report back to his wife that he he couldn't find an organization that would do that and. You know, like all, all good Marines have a have a great uh, great wife uh, behind them helping them out uh, <laughs> from time to time. And she says, "Well, Bill, then why don't you create a program yourself?" And and that was the inspiration where where he and his, his Marines and his unit in Los Angeles went out and raised uh, about five thousand toys to distribute in 1947 to children in need. And it was uh, it was so successful that the the commandant next year. Uh, directed all the reserve units uh, to run a similar campaign in 1948, and that's uh, when it became national. And and I got to tell you, 70 years later, um, the mission is still the same today as it was in 1947, to, is which is to deliver the magic of Christmas to children. So it went from 5,000 toys to uh, last year we distributed uh, 18 million toys to 7 million children. And uh, in its uh, accumulation uh, for 70 years was was uh, were about uh, 244 million children supported over the 70 years. That, that's incredible. That is incredible. Tell me how the system works. Let our folks know how they can join in the fun and drop off points and all sorts of things like that. Sure, sure. Well, Toys for Tots is a community action program, so. There are um, just over 800 local campaigns in all 50 states this year, and each one of those is led by a coordinator And uh, where we have Marine units. It's a Marine, and we also have campaigns where there are no Marine units, and we have other folks there filling in, uh, running a campaign. 
and, uh, and it really uh, it's, it galvanizes the community. Our, our, our Marines and volunteers are are asking the folks to drop a toy in a local toy bin, and and um, you know all all uh, you know for for three months, October, <clears throat> November, and and right up to about another uh, week or so, they're still collecting toys, and then it's time to for them to uh, start distributing it to the uh, families in need in their communities there. So there are toy uh, toy collection bins. Um, in, in very in many communities so all over, we probably have a couple hundred thousand of them across the United States. Uh, but uh, they're 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 in all communities. Uh, we have a lot of great national partners. Uh, toy toy drives are also done in, in Toys R Us stores and 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 all over. And if and if folks are looking to find out, you can go to the toysfortots.org website, and uh, from there you can find out where where the closest uh, toy uh, collection site is. That is super. There are an awful lot of businesses out there, as you said. There are so many who are participating as being drop-off points. In our area, one of the pharmacies, Walgreens, which is a pretty large firm, I don't. I guess they're they're nationwide. And in this area, they have been participating for quite a while. You can drop off toys at, at Walgreens. Um, can they contact? Let's see. When you, when when I go to the toysfortots.org, hope everybody wrote that down. Toysfortots.org. When I go up there, I can search for the uh, campaign in my area. Can people call them directly and ask what they are needing for this particular year? Because I know from previous conversations with you and Major Grine that there are particular age groups and sometimes. Interestingly, in particular areas, there is a specific need for a specific group of kids. Can they contact them directly? Um, they, they can. Uh, you can uh, go to the to the website and and find your local area, and then in a drop down, you can enter your state and then your city or county, and it'll bring up the local campaign uh, website with all their information and contact information. At this time, it, it might it may be a little a little tough getting through to them because our Marines and volunteers are are quite literally uh, they're on the streets m- most of the time and they're running around from one toy uh, a collection site to another collecting up all those toys. But you sure can collect them and and just to, um, you know most most of our campaigns uh, they 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 run out of toys usually for the older kids first because. Toys for 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 preteens, early teens uh, aren't really so much toys. They're they're more gifts. They they tend to be a little more expensive, a little harder to come by, a little more difficult to to pick out. Uh, uh, you know, a gift for an older child. So they 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 seem to run out of that age group before before others. Yeah. Uh, gosh, I'm going to hop to the bottom of my list here uh, because we're we're tickling the right area here. How um. Can you give us a couple of examples of toys or categories of toys for the more difficult groups to provide for? Um, sure. Uh, you know, like a like a, a wallet set. Um, you know, some some uh, you know makeup kit. Uh, you know, some there there's some you know electronics have really uh, come down in price over the years. So you know, maybe like an MP3 player. Um, anything that you would. You would, uh, you know, um, that would be suitable for, for for your if you have children in the same age would be, you know, just a, as appropriate to 
to donate mm-hmm. to uh, your local Toys for Tots campaign. Yeah. I have to tell you, I did something really cruel one time. <laughs> I bought a drum for my five-year-old nephew. Um, it was not the most appreciated gift in the world, but boy, he sure liked it. <laughs> Are there any things that they should get that big? Yeah, right. <laughs> that was cruel. Um are, are there any items that people, might, they might not make the best choice in the world, even though they're toys and they would be appropriate for kids. Are there any things like the drums that um, probably wouldn't be appreciated by somebody in the family? Um, you know, we, we uh, just, just uh, suggest to the, to the public and, and others looking to donate, again, just kind of, you know, whatever would be appropriate uh, for for your own children to receive during during Christmas or any of the other holidays, uh, something similar. Um, you know, there's not nothing really. Uh, um, you know, of course, you know maybe realistic looking replica. You know, weapons might not be a a great choice, uh, but yeah. but little cap guns and whatnot are certainly fine. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we we uh, we also have a literacy program. So you know, um, any kind of activity books, reading books for for younger children would be great. Um, you know, we, we also encourage, uh, uh, the development of, of, uh, you know, athletics or, you know, a basketball or, or a football, um, anything like that, uh, would, would be, would be just, just great to help, help, uh, deliver the, the magic of Christmas to children in need in your area. Yeah, that sounds really super. I really appreciate the suggestion. It's one thing that I usually forget to ask when we're talking about Toys for Tots. Um, what about small items? Um, you know, some people are, some of our listeners are in my kind of position where we're stuck in a in a facility. Others have really tight budgets. What about small things like coloring books and crayons? Are those the kinds of things that would be appropriate? Absolutely, very, very much appropriate. Um, you know, most of our our coordinators, uh, all, all of them, you know, they they try to uh, bundle together a, a you know a package of of toys for 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 each uh, child uh, that they're trying to support. And of course, that that relies uh, depends heavily on on what they raise in a local area there. But they'll they'll try to do a a larger toy, you know, a couple of smaller toys, some stocking stuffers, a, a puzzle game. Um, you know, or, or, you know, in a book or activity with, with, with crayon. So absolutely. Um, whether it's a, you know, you know, a large bicycle or, or a small pack of crayons, it, it all goes to, uh, to, to great use. And, and, uh, again, just kind of, you know, bringing the, the, the magic to those children who otherwise might've been forgotten. That is really no, great. No toy too small. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we we tend to look at Christmas and think, well, kids want a computer or, you know, some of the really huge things. And when I was a kid, I, I loved things like crayons and books and paper, anything that I could do with paper. So I'm I'm really glad I asked that, and they, they really would be the right things to give. And they don't cost a fortune. You don't, you don't have to dip into Absolutely. money to, to get a coloring book, especially right. – I know I've mentioned this before. The store, dollar stores like um, the Dollar General and the Dollar Tree, they have um, really great things for kids, like coloring books and crayons, for a dollar. And um, you know that that's pretty cool. So if people have uh, one of them nearby, then it's not going to be a challenge to get there. 
those are those are really neat stores to go through. I love to go through them just because, <laughs> not because I'm looking. Yes, for we them, we just we, we get a lot of support from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of a lot of great uh, great gifts that are that are you know inexpensive uh, from stores mm-hmm. like that. And and if individuals are are you know if it's tough to 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 get out, uh, they can always go to our website too. And and even you know even a five dollar donation. It, it, we, we, we purchase a lot of toys to augment the toy drives mm-hmm. last year. Um, you know, our, our, the, the foundation with the support we raised, we were able to augment, uh, about $66 million worth of toys to our 800 campaigns. You know, as good as our Marines are raising toys, they, they do run short. So, and you know, we're not going to, uh, uh, let a lot of, a lot of children and families down. So, you know that that yeah. that's what we do is uh you know raise additional support so we can make sure that their their warehouse has toys in it all all holiday season long. Uh-huh. <clears throat> well, that that's really I, I've got so many questions here. We're talking with um, Colonel Ted Sylvester, U.S. Marine Corps retired, and I don't think there's any such thing. Marine Corps is fine, but the retired is not. He is vice president of the Marine Toys for Tots Foundation. And many of our family members, we call our listeners our family because they really are, they are well aware of Toys for Tots because we love Toys for Tots and we talk about it even at different times of the year. So we are just delighted that Ted has been able to join us for several times, and this is Christmas 2017. So I, I need to ask you a couple of things. When you're talking about donations, the first thing I want people to understand is that you are a 501c3, which means you are nonprofit and you are tax deductible for you are a tax deductible organization to contribute to. So any contributions up there, if I am saying the truth here, any contributions that people make, whether dollars or toys, save your receipts. Um, they are able to um, have have that as a tax deduction. Is that still correct? It sure is. Yep, we we absolutely are a five hundred one c three, a non for profit public charity, and all donations, whether they're they're cash or toys, and some companies donate services as well. Um, they they are all all tax deductible. And uh, mm-hmm. I just like to, uh, to to point out as well. Um, you know, for those that do, uh, you know, donate to, to Toys for Tots, that that we make very good use of their donations. We are we are very proud of our program to service expense ratio of 97 to three. So that that means 97 cents of every donated dollar goes right into the program, and and less than three percent goes toward fundraising and, and overhead. So that uh, that's something we're pretty proud of, and I, I guess uh, you know. Uh, an organization run run by Marines, you know, who who knows how to do more with less than than the Marines. So we just want to make sure it goes all into the program. Retirement doesn't change that. It doesn't. No. It, it certainly does not. Now, um, I I want to make sure that people know how to donate. You can go to toysfortots.org, and there's. A ribbon across the top that locates a whole bunch of different things, but donate is the one you would click if you wanted to give money. And you take, if I'm correct, major credit cards. Are you still having PayPal available to people? Uh, PayPal is available as well. Yes, it sure is. Okay, that's great. So they've got a whole bunch of choices. And um, and I'm not finished with your questions yet. This sounds like a wind up, but it's not. Um, <laughs> I have I have. 
Oh, you have someone on the line? No, no, no. I got a couple questions oh. after you're done, so go ahead. Okay, um, and I, I should have mentioned early on that we are talking live tonight, December 9th, 2017, to uh, Colonel Ted Sylvester, and the lines are open if you have a question or a comment about Toys for Tots, uh, 714-545-2071. It's our regular Saturday night number, and please give us a call. I also have the mailing address for Toys for Tots, so anyone who is interested in that, just send me an email. You know my email, floridawriter at hotmail.com, and I'll get the address to you. Um, tell me the role of individuals rather than the, as opposed to the corporate gifts. I know that they, they are such enormous helps. Individuals play a significant role as well. What percent of the gifts come from individuals? Well, that, that's a great that's a great question, and it's almost almost all uh, the, the the majority of the support that we get are from individuals dropping a single toy in, in one of the toy collection bins across the United States. It's uh, it's, it's it's the American public that that. Uh, you know, it's a community action program, and, and it's, it's our, our Marines and volunteers engaging with the community and, and getting that call to action out. And, and it's the individuals dropping a single toy at a time into the collection bins. And, that, and that's, that's really the, uh, the heart and soul of the program and, and, and what makes it so successful. And we do have some, some corporate support, but, you know, that, that's really, really minor compared to what the American public is able to do for the program and the children that we support. Wow, that's warm, fuzzy stuff. I'm so happy to hear that. Ted, how do you know which children need the kind of help that you can give to have a Merry Christmas? Um, yes, well, the, the only requirement to receive a toy from the program is, uh, you know, is, is to be in financial need. So in, any families that are on any any kind of, uh, you know, financial assistance, either you know, local, state, or or, or, or federal assistance, or are, are, uh, are, are those families that that we try to help out, and and a lot of our Marines uh, work with local social service agencies to to help identify those families in their areas, mm-hmm. so we can get toys to their children. And we're talking seven million kids. Um, I'm I'm assuming that you're hopeful that you can at least reach seven million children again this year. How do we jack up the numbers? How do we help jack up the numbers of children you are helping? Well, uh, you know, uh, if you can, if you can, uh, there's, there's still still a little bit of time between now now and Christmas and, and some of the other holidays. If you haven't finished your your holiday shopping, you know, we just ask folks to, you know, purchase an additional toy and 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 find a local toy drive to, to drop that toy in. We, we've had feedback from. Some of our coordinators and and they they are a, a little worried. Uh, you know, some of their toy collections are are you know they're they're not as robust as as before. Uh, and yeah. you know that that happens and and especially in a lot of the areas where you know we had so many devastating storms and hurricanes and whatnot. So that 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 hampers local toy collection efforts while. The, the number of families uh, in need are, are, you know, significantly increasing. So we're working hard to, uh, to, to raise toys locally and, and, and gaining a lot of support from a lot of wonderful corporations to help us out and, and augment their local campaigns. 
most of the campaigns have a cutoff date before Christmas. That gives them an opportunity to match kids with the toys and to wrap them. And incidentally, don't wrap the toys when you drop them off because they only have to be unwrapped. Um, what, is, what is the typical day or what is the date for this year that most of the campaigns are going to be ending? Yeah, it, it's about it's it's around the anywhere between the 15th, 16th, 17th. Um, some campaigns go all the way right up to, you know, a, a couple of days prior to Christmas. Um, you know, other ones, you know, a little bit uh, a, a little bit sooner, but you know, before then. Mm-hmm. So it's it's, it's pr- you know usually about 10 days prior because that allows them to make one last sweep and and collect the toys, and they they have to you know bring them back and sort them all by by age and gender, and then bundle yeah. them up. You know, per per child, per per package, uh, per family, and 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 make sure they're distributed in in time for for Christmas. So it's usually about about the seven eight days before Christmas that allow them to do that. That's amazing. The uh, the number of hours that people put in must be staggering, and these are all volunteers. Yes, you know our 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 Marines. Uh, are, are quite quite remarkable and and all of the the volunteers that 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 do that put in just just so so many hours and and their marine duties and and civilian jobs don't stop by the way so uh they're they're really managing two uh two major uh major feats uh for for about three months of the year so it, it, you know you know my hat's off to to all the folks out there that are that are making it happen as it really is you know they don't have weekends they work late into the night. They do uh, a lot of work, a lot of preparation to make sure those those toys go out before Christmas. Um, for next year, not for this year, next year, tell people how they can become a volunteer. Yes, uh, same way. Um, you know, all of our campaigns have, have uh, local websites. You go to our website to, to find your local campaign, and then if they have... Uh, um, you know, information there on how to contact them um, or what days and, and events that they are looking for volunteer help. So you can get it all through the local website at toysfortots.org to find out about volunteer opportunities. And, and they uh, rely very heavily on volunteers. So, again, it's just another, another way that the American public comes through in a, in a big way to, to help out the program. Mm-hmm. Are you personally in touch with things like hot the, the toys that are hot for a particular year do you know those things um no not really uh we don't we don't chase the the the, the hot toys or the toys in demand um you know we're, we're just looking for for uh you know any any toy that's you know suitable to distribute uh when when we uh purchase toys to augment our, our campaigns we we uh we purchase you know quite a few of them so we have pretty good pretty good buying power and and you know um they typically are you know close out items or items on sale uh, where we can get some pretty deep discounts so we can um, you know purchase even even more toys than than say the 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 latest you know the hot toys sure sure and you get a big bang for the bucks that you have to work with i remember you're talking about that and bill talking about that as well so that the dollar contributions you have to help me if I'm right here. I'm going from memory. The dollar contributions, <clears throat> excuse me, that people are able to make, give you an opportunity to 
buy more than they could for example five dollars if i give you five dollars you're going to be able to get more for that money than i could get for five dollars so the dollar contributions are really important very much so um but hugely important and and you're absolutely right we can you know we can purchase a a uh you know a a group of toys you know uh, maybe a book and a a sports item, um, you know, a, a doll or whatnot for, you know, for, for $5. So we, we can, uh, mm-hmm. we can get a few, a few items for, for just a few dollars. And, and, yeah. and really, uh, like I said earlier, we, our Marines are, you know, they, they, they tend to run out of toys. So we, uh, work hard to, to react to, to what their needs are and, and all their 800 campaigns and, and do a lot of additional purchasing to, plus up their their warehouse and we can we can do that uh, uh very very efficiently tell me about dollars to marines uh, uh, i remember from different conversations marines on site are not permitted to accept dollar donations is that still the case the- um they they can accept a cash donation on behalf of the foundation the Marine Toys for Tots Foundation, because it is the foundation that is the 501c3. Our Marines are not allowed to. They're in uniform members. You know, they're they're not supposed to be soliciting. Uh, you know, for money. Uh, they're they're running a program which are are encouraging the the public to to donate toys uh, to to the toy collection drives. Uh, mm-hmm. Many people will, you know, uh, generous folks will, will approach um, the, our our Marines and volunteers and and make cash donations and and they absolutely uh, can accept those uh, on behalf of the foundation. Excellent. That uh, yes. that is really good to know. Uh because we are getting down to the wire here, but the marines and the volunteers are going to be looking for ways to augment the items that they have to give to the kids. So, it's okay to give them the money instead of mailing it to you for this year. Yes, yes. Uh, many, many folks, uh, many local companies, uh, many, many individuals uh, do just that, and and they they do uh, they, they they do get sent to the foundation. All donations are acknowledged, and and we issue a, a, a an acknowledgement letter that can be used for tax purposes, whether the individual uh, donated to the local campaign or or straight to the foundation. They all they all get acknowledged uh, for for tax purposes, and and um, the, and the money, any any donations that are made locally remain there local. So they they spend those those funds uh, are able to support their local campaign. Yeah, that that is. I'm sorry. Could somebody contact the local drop off point and call them and say, Hey, what are you short of? That way they know sure what to buy. That might help out a local child in their area. Is, is that possible? That could. It, you know, I think it. You know, it, it might be pretty tough to to get through sometimes because uh, a lot of our our local campaigns, uh, you know, they might have one phone line, and and sometimes it's even the you know personal phone of the individual running the campaign, and they're 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 you know they they they're quite busy, kind of all over the place, collecting toys, sorting them, and distributing them, and and it may be uh, the case that they just wouldn't be able to take so many calls. Um, you know, but there are emails uh, available, or you can submit questions and whatnot through their local website. It's a little easier for them to, to track that way. 
Excellent. How do the how do the children? I guess it's families. You give the families the uh, the toys. How do you get the toys to those families? Yes, uh, another another great question, and and it's and it varies from from campaign to campaign. Um, we we have some really huge, large campaigns uh, like Atlanta. They they uh, collected. I'm sorry. They they distributed uh, about a million toys to 500,000 children in the surrounding counties in Atlanta area alone from one campaign. And you have other campaigns that that uh, are uh, you know real small town USA and 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 uh, you know pretty spread out county, but not a high population. So you know e- each one of those varies a little bit. Uh, sometimes our, our our Marines and coordinators will have a distribution center where where families will come directly to that center after they've registered and identified their need and, and, uh, and the number of children they have, and they come right up to the distribution center to get their, their toys uh, on distribution days, or maybe it's through Salvation Army or some other local social service agencies uh, where our, our Marines will, will uh, you know, individually bundle up, you know, for each child, for each family, and deliver those to the the social service agencies, and and th- from there they will be distributed. Uh, so it kind of varies from from campaign to yeah. campaign a little bit. Yeah. Now you mentioned your literacy program earlier. Would you talk for a minute about that? How it came about, and what you hope to accomplish with it? Absolutely. Our our uh, president and CEO is uh, Lieutenant General Pete Osmond. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he he uh, he came aboard in 2008, and he 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 came across some 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 numbers, uh, uh, you know, about literacy rates and and impoverished areas and inner cities, uh, and and with with regard to just you know books available to to children were, were quite alarmingly low, and and came to find out that the largest barrier to to literacy was simply access to books and and the uh, number of, of children's books per children in these areas were, were quite alarming and he so he's like boy we have a really big distribution network for for toys you know what a what a what a great idea to add a book or two uh in, in the distribution to, to children at the same time just to to help out uh and and um, help out with their educational needs and whatnot. And uh, that was the time that the UPS store uh, uh, came on board as a as a big su- supporter and sponsor of our literacy program in in 2008. And since then, we've uh, we've distributed uh, I, I want to say almost a little over 90 million books since 2008. Now we have a wow. have a long way to go. We can't we haven't given a been able to distribute a book or two to to each child, but, uh, but we're getting closer. So it's, it's, uh, it's quite a, quite a few books, uh, distributed in, in those last yeah. 10 years. So that's another, um, I'm sorry. I just want to say that's another gift that people who are looking for the right items to give might consider buying. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, you know, children's, you know, reading books, activity books, um, you know, uh, you know, crayon, uh, you know, activity books. Those are all fantastic for options for for gifts. Absolutely. And I have found some really great books for kids 
in the dollar stores again. They buy up remainders, and these are sometimes ten, twelve, twenty dollar books that we get for a dollar. So I'm I'm doing work for <laughs> marketing the, the dollar stores and Dollar General and Dollar Tree, you know, the, the places where you can buy very inexpensive items. Walton, I tripped right over. Absolutely, you, and want to ask? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, you know, I was just saying yes. The, the Dollar General is a is a is a big supporter of the program. A lot, a lot of toy drives in in their stores, and and they uh, and they uh, contribute significantly uh, to us each year as well. Excellent. A great place to shop and that. or uh, drop off a toy. Yes. Mm-hmm. I did not realize that. Uh, one of the things, and Walton, I'm so sorry. I'll I'll say go ahead and wait just a minute. One of the things that impressed me in a place like Dollar General. Not everything costs one dollar. Sometimes it's you know three, four, and five dollars. Uh, always good things to choose from, but it's you can't walk into a dollar uh, a dollar store in on I want to say in general. <laughs> I keep using the word general. A a typical dollar store does not necessarily have every item for one dollar, whereas the Dollar Tree does i discovered that uh, a couple of years ago so um if you've if you've got a choice dollar general obviously because they're a major supporter of toys for tots but also the dollar tree in your area will have every item in the store for one dollar so walden i'm sorry i trounced on you Yes, well, and those are our two separate entities. You know, our 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 mission um, really is to you know deliver toys, and and um, on occasion you may see a local uh, coordinator, uh, you know, uh, you know, do a, a distribution event, uh, maybe in conjunction with with a with another charity, particularly in areas that are that are hit by a by a hurricane or other some kind of you know devastating storm. Um, you may see a little bit of that, but. Um, we, we usually uh, don't don't combine uh, or, or distribute other types of items uh, in addition to toys. So we we pretty much just stick to the our mission of uh, delivering toys at Christmas time. I've got the hiccups. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to hiccup. <laughs> I'm going, this is live live radio. Absolutely, we we stay busy uh, all the way you know um, all the way through January and February. We we do um, a big after action. Uh, we we ask all of our our coordinators. Uh, they think it's all done. You know, Christmas comes and goes, and and uh, you know they they wipe their forehead. Woo, it's all over. Well, there's a little bit of little bit of paperwork and a little bit of counting, so we can uh, have a. Um, you know, we, we, we need to, you know, validate what we received and what we distributed and, and do it a little little assessment. So they, they provide us each unit a pretty detailed after action. And then uh, and then those of us at, at the foundation, we, we uh, 
we sit down and, and, uh, and strategize and, and see what we need to fix or, or what worked well, what work didn't uh, all through the spring and, and uh, try and incorporate any of those changes through the summer for, for the next holiday campaign here. Absolutely. We sure do. When did your campaign begin? I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Walden. How long has the foundation been around? I mean, it's Toys for Tots been around for several years. Has the foundation been around probably not as many years? No, no. Yeah, the foundation was created in, in 1991. Um, it was created at the behest of the Marine Corps because when Toys for Tots first started, uh, you know, it was it was folks uh, donating toys. Uh, and back then, uh, we... we we uh, accepted uh, used toys, and our Marines would spend a lot of time, you know, fixing up and, and repairing and, and making presentable those toys. And and uh, up through the 70s and into the 80s, you know, we switched to uh, to just just accepting new unwrapped toys only. And that was, uh, you know, we just it was for several reasons. You know, it was for for uh, you know for, for for health and safety concerns, and and plus, you know, we we thought it was just not the right message to be distributing secondhand toys, you know, to, to, you know, families that they're a little down in their luck. We want them to be new toys. And, and also during that time, a lot of folks started, you know, donating, uh, you know, cash and, and, and the program, you know, grew, you know, year after year. So a lot of things were happening that, that service members uh, really, really uh, um, shouldn't or, or couldn't be doing like, like, raising dollars to augment their campaign or entering into contracts or, or issuing access to court, uh, asked that the foundation be stood up to do those things. Uh, of course, uh, you know, the foundation are, are, you know, folks that were uh, former Marines at one point. So they, they know, uh, they know the Marine Corps, the heritage and, and history and, and, uh, and the, and the standards uh, of the Marine Corps are, are, are those uh, carried right into the foundation. So, <clears throat> that is uh, kind of how the foundation came to be in, in 1991. And you're still here. And I'd add, too, that, that the foundation uh, has augmented toys uh, through their uh, support that they raised with other other companies and, and whatnot to uh, last year the accumulated uh, uh, augmentation was about 900 Sixty million dollars worth of toys since 1991. In addition to what the Marines have raised locally, that's interesting. I, I have a question about gift cards. I wound up with several gift cards for most of them are are five dollar gift cards. Can I put them in an envelope uh, and drop it off at the drop off point, and that would be something of value to Toys for Tots? Well, um, you know, gift cards can, can, can be a little tricky. Um, if they're received in time, you know, our, our coordinators would probably go use them to, to purchase toys. <clears throat> we don't, you know, we don't distribute cards as a gift. Uh, mm-hmm. So we would, uh, we would, you know, um, use those cards, uh, assuming there, were, there was still time left to do so. Um, a lot of our local campaigns do receive local support. Uh, sometimes they can use gift cards to to purchase fuel for for all the cars and vehicles the trucks they're using back and forth collecting uh, toys and whatnot but uh, 
we don't distribute cards as, as, as gifts. So we would turn them into toys if, if we could. Mm-hmm. So, gosh, I'm really glad I asked. That That is too cool. Okay. Well, Holden, you must have had another question. I was just, I was just thinking any donations from after, let's say, the 20th on, it will roll into next year, right? That if somebody decided to make a donation, you know, when it got too close to Christmas, you guys generally just roll everything into next year, correct? Yes, yes, it, it sure would at that point. <clears throat> and we we have uh, a lot of toy bills to pay as well, you know, from the foundation. So we, we do uh, um, receive support from, from, you know, a lot of companies, a lot of individuals as well. All, all year long, uh, we receive uh, donations through our website or, or accept them, you know, you know, check coming direct to the foundation all year long. Um, and that just, we do a very large toy buy in the spring time frame. We don't deliver the toys, but we do purchase the toys for our 800 locations and have them ready to be drop shipped to all of our campaigns come October. So, you know, springtime is, is our is our uh, very our first large toy buy. Wow. I want to remind our listeners that we are live tonight, December 9th, 2017, because this will be repeated. The show will be repeated at different times. Uh, we are at 7145. Four five two zero seven one. Our regular Saturday night uh, call line. Um, gosh, this, this is just just incredible. We're talking with Colonel Ted Sylvester, U.S. Marine Corps, retired. I, I just I, I laugh at the word retired. And you are Vice President of the Marine Toys for Tots Foundation. Ted, what are the kinds of messages you would like to get out to people? Well. You know, we, we, we have, uh, I, I believe, 15 million children living in poverty within the United States, and and we'd, we'd, we'd love to uh, support as many as those children as we can. So if you can get out there and, and you know, purchase, you know, one additional toy and, and drop it into a local toy, toy collection site in your local campaign, in your local area there, we would certainly love it. And I know the, the children who receive it uh, appreciate it very much. That's wonderful. Walden, do you have any more questions? No, I think we need to let Ted go to bed because he's got a, probably a big day tomorrow and, until Christmas. So, Ted, thank uh, you I for, would uh, think so. Thank <laughs> you for staying extra long to let the station get back up and running. And uh, I know for Chris and I wish you a very, very happy Merry Christmas. And we'll look forward to talking to you next year. Very Absolutely. Happy Patricia and Walden, yeah. Thank you so much for, for having me on. and sharing the Toys for Tots story, and, and uh, you have a Merry Christmas. Thank you so much, Ted. Good night. All right. Good night. All right. Well, we have a special guest on the line. Ah. <laughs> hello, caller. You are on with somebody you know. Well, hello from Alabama. Hello, Mm-hmm. <gasps> I know who you are. I know who you are. Do you really? This is yes, I do. This is my sister Barbara, who lives in Alabama. Merry Christmas, and everybody! Yeah, are you hearing us okay tonight? No, I actually I can barely hear you. Seriously, huh. I can barely hear you. Well, I can fix that. Wow! Oh, oh, could you? That would be wonderful. 
Well, she brought it up on the line, so she's been listening to the board. So I had, I had, I I will put this up as normal for you. That okay. way you can do. Patricia, that way. Okay. Okay. All right, so when, when you hang up in a little bit and go back to listening to us on the computer, you listen on the computer, correct? I, I can't hear you, Pat. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, I why I don't I just say up. that it was very interesting. Oh, my God. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop, stop. Walden, you turned her up, yeah, and my gosh, she's blowing my brains out I here. Well, that, that's why I got I to fix, I got to do this. Hold on. That's why I got confused. Okay. I All right. You want to try again, Barb? Because I am, I, you just really went up so loud. And Sorry about that. You, Is that better? No, oh, no it's, it's the board. It's the, the sound on the board. I, I, moved so, the, I moved the wrong switch. You know, cause I, yeah. I was pointing with Patricia knobs rather than <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I'm going to tell people about how, about my Excuse knob. me? <laughs> yes. Can you hear me any better? Well, uh, you're, you're going to let us know whether or not you can hear not me really. any better. You're very, very faint, and then you go in and out. Well, I have to be turned up. Yeah. So I have to be turned up both for the callers and for the broadcast. Is that all in one button? Yes. Oh, that that's a little better. I know where she had. Okay. I'll move okay. This. I'll move this one here. I'll move this one there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. So there, there we go. Okay. Oh, that's better. Ha, can you hear me now? Yes, oh, you can hear me better. Oh, great. Yep. Yep. Well, oh, that, anyway. Oh, that. I, I would like. Yeah. I would, I would like to. I'd be happy to give my board to anybody to figure out all the knobs I have in front of me. <laughs> Oh, yeah, God. That's your job, Walden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I was just going to say if, something like that. That's, yep. Very, very good. Very good. Okay. Well, see, we, we yeah. <laughs> Okay. So, and you do your job so well, Walden. Oh, Please okay. don't scare any of us with. <laughs> I'm not touching anything. <laughs> You're with not. Pole. <laughs> uh, Barbara, how's the snow? How, how, how did your bat surgery turn out? Give it the rundown. We haven't talked to you on the air for a while. So, how are you personally feeling? Well, we we did have snow last night. We did. We sure did. And I was I was so happy because I thought, you know, I have a yellow lab, mm -hmm. and I thought this is going to be great tomorrow morning. This morning, letting him out into the snow because he hasn't seen snow since he was a small puppy. Maybe he forgot what it looks like. Oh, absolutely! I forgot what it looks like. <laughs> it's been so long. But, um, you know, and, and I got up this morning, and it was just, it was pretty much melted away. You know, it was just a, it was coming down pretty strong last night. And then I guess about 6 this morning it stopped, and by the time I got out there, about 7, 7.30, it was um, pretty much gone. So it, it's going to take a while for the ground to cool down enough that it won't disappear so quickly. Mm, well, it's supposed to be sunny. To, it's, it rained all week. I was so yeah. sick of the rain, and I thought, sure, we'd get pounded with snow. I was hoping we would, because my shopping's done, you know, my grocery shopping's done, everything's <laughs> done. 
and I was looking forward to just kind of uh, hunkering down and um, watching the snow a little bit and letting the dog out for him to enjoy it. But yeah. it didn't happen. So what the most, what the most snow you ever you ever remember a, a snow a really heavy snow winter at the camp? Oh gosh, in New York, about three feet, right? Right, Patricia? Yeah. Yeah, we we did have some pretty stiff stuff. Mm-hmm. And the first thing we did, of course, was uh, get the sleighs out. And, because at the end of our street, there was like a, uh, a little hill. I mean, I went back there since, and you know, the hill looked a lot bigger when I was small, you know. <laughs> but we we had a ball. And Patricia and I, we, we loved to ice skate. And we had a a pond, oh, about two or three blocks away from us. And we used to go there um, in the late morning, and we used to skate until almost dark, until our feet were just numb and we couldn't feel them. Right, Patricia? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that That is true. And the pond was on private property, and I don't think it was actually a pond. I think it was more like wetland. But when it froze over, it looked like a huge pond, and yeah, it was yeah. great. A lot of the, a lot of the kids went down there. Mm-hmm. And there was a little island in the middle where somebody, I guess, the first one down there would would start like a um, a fire. And when you got too cold, you go to the, um, the little island and kind of sit around and get get warm if you could. But uh, I don't remember that. Gosh. Oh yeah. Don't you? Yeah, they used to build like like a campfire. No, I I don't remember that. Oh heck yeah! See, you remind you remind me of stuff that we grew up with. That's good. I know, isn't that special? <laughs> oh yes, you are. <laughs> oh yes, you are. So. Well, I'm so glad you got I'm so glad you got to call in. Well, I I was hoping I'd get to speak with the colonel. Um, I just wanted to say how much I admire the um. Toys for Tots campaign, and um, one thing that I would would have always cherished when I was small, and if I was homesick for whatever reason, a big cuddly teddy bear would do wonders for me. So that would do wonders for other kids. Uh huh. Yep, a, a small child with Thank a you. with a cuddly teddy bear. They that yeah. would <laughs> they would love that. Well, that's great. Thank you for saying mm-hmm. that. And even grown-up kids like me, huh? Yes. You know what? I would yeah. love a teddy bear right now. <laughs> well, all right. So, well, I'm I'm very glad everybody knows about that. <laughs> you think Sam would someone, bring me a teddy bear? Of course. Yeah, I hope someone. I hope with someone in your town heard I you. I put my order in. Might as well. See, we're looking. Any, if you can look up in the phone book, there's a, any. He said, you can send teddy bears to all the barbers in Alabama. You <laughs> might get to the right barber. <laughs> Just send it to Walden. He'll there you go. It. I'll drop ship the right directly to Barbara. Yeah. There, there, there. Yes, everything goes to Walden, and then Walden reships. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, Walden has his own post office. That is true. That is so yeah. Cool. Yeah, he does. So. Well, listen, I will, okay. I will let somebody else call in, and um, I'm sure I'll speak with you beforehand, Walden, but uh, if I don't, for whatever reason. Well, I'm going to be on every day until the January 4th. At least, yeah, I mean, I, I know. I, I know you'll be busy, Barbara, but we put in a call in by, 
Oh, I will. By January 7th of 2018, you know. Uh-huh. Anyway, Merry Christmas if we don't talk before then, Mark. Okay, to you too. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. I'll be talking to you, Patricia. Oh, yes, you will. <laughs> okay. <laughs> love you guys. Okay. Oh, love you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yes, we are in the holiday mood. And Patricia and I, uh-huh. Patricia and I are starting to work out our schedule. So she's going to join me on Monday and Tuesday this week around midnight Eastern time on the blue. So you know, we'll have Patricia on both Monday and Tuesday. Wednesday, I have a throwback core meeting, so I don't know exactly what time we'll start the show. It'll be at midnight or 12:30 or something like that. So I just I don't want Bart, I don't want Patricia to hang out waiting until until the cows come home. So we'll give her the night off. Uh, you know, we'll take my care. Thank you. Who is there? And Thursday we'll figure this out. Hello there, you're on with Patricia. Is this Patricia this in Walden? Again. Sweeping. I'm awake. You're not sweeping I, anymore? I, I, I took a nap. Indiana. I came home and took a nap. That's damn. He took a nap just to, just to he be He took a nap. Wow. Yeah. Walton, can you turn can you turn Dan or the, the callers down a little bit? Uh-huh. They got turned up by accident. No, I, I, I will turn Daniel down. So that way, okay. That way Daniel doesn't get blown out. So. Okay. Okay. This is Dan in Indiana, and you got some snow, too. We did, we did. Not as much down. How much did Barbara get? Uh, she essentially, it sounded like a dusting during the night, dust. and it was yeah, it was not huge. Birmingham got got quite a bit though. Now I'm a California, I'm a California kid. Can you explain it to me? What's a dusting? <laughs> oh, it's, a, it's a like dusting would be just a nice coating of of snow. Oil. A lot like a heavy frost. So about four or five feet, is that a dusting? Uh, no, no, not quite. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. You know what a, what a, um, a donut with, with, um, powdered sugar on it? Yeah. You know that. Yeah. Yeah. So translate that into land. Okay. And so pretend the, the land is, is a giant donut. Do I count the donut or do I get count the powdered sugar? No, pretend that the ground is a donut and the snow is the powdered sugar. Oh, okay. That's a dusting. Oh, that's, that's pretty good, huh? Yeah, that was a good good. description. Good. Yeah. Did you see the snow all the way down to the, uh, to the Gulf Coast? Say that again, please, Dan. Did you see the snow in pictures uh, all the way down to the Gulf Coast? I sure did. Yes, the panhandle on the north part of the state got quite a bit of snow. So, so we're we're there. getting snow in. Gosh, how many different states? I wonder. Probably, probably forty, I'd say. Yeah, I I watched the news with the front coming through, and it was a lot of states that were supposed to wind up with snow. Mm-hmm. Indiana That's is quite one a bit. Of Quite and you did get some. Well, you know, if Florida gets snow or flurries or whatever, then it's covered quite a bit of the country then. Yeah. You will have to pass the snow cream recipe on to Barbara. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to pass what on to Barbara? The snow 
Oh, 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 gosh, yes. It, it really is a snow cone. <laughs> the snow ice cream, yes. She had quite a recipe on this website for for snow ice cream. Um, I, I think I would wait for a fair amount to be built up before I went out to scoop up some ice cream. <laughs> you don't know what you're going to get in dirt. And the initial snow, interesting, the beginning of the, uh, of snowfall, helps clean out the air so it's taking pollutants out of the air and you don't want to put those pollutants into your tummy so you have to wait a little bit after uh, the snow begins to fall to think about collecting it for snow cones and stuff like that there i think they said on the news that it had been 30 years since there had been snow in like houston that's right um the cal uh california texas Parts of Texas got quite a bit of snow today. Yeah. I was, uh, Kim played, uh, you know, some, uh, played Dean Martin. Uh, I'll, uh, I've got my love to keep me warm. And I thought, gosh, mm-hmm. you know, I was waiting for you to come on. I was trying to call Walden saying, hey, you're late. You know, or you, you, you're, yeah. we've got dead air here. But then I heard the music come on. And I thought, well, that's kind of an appropriate song because we've got snow and cold, and then we've got, uh, you know, uh, of course, there's a point there where the song talks about, you know, the flames get higher, you know, and I was thinking about Port Walden and everybody in California. Yeah. How are the fires? Yeah. Fires are hot, hot and heavy. We don't have anything here, per se, thank goodness. Yeah. But uh, it's, it's cold this day. It's, it's, and they're expecting it until the 23rd. Of December, uh-huh. which is the hot conditions. Wow. And, uh, no, what happened, everybody? Um, Kim was working on a computer today. Mm-hmm. And then it was okay. And then somehow, when I Skyped in, it did not recognize the sound card. So, Patricia and Ted and I were sitting here playing the music, and I was calling. I wasn't hearing anything, so I was calling Kim, and then she was coming downstairs. And then she was looking at it, and then we were scratching our heads, and then we decided to reboot the computer, and then I just said, Patricia and Ted, I'm just going to call the guys back once Kim kicked, she pulled things out, she pulled things in, so we just wanted to say we had to have Kim put everything back together again. So, that's why we were mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, I figured it was something like that. Yeah. So, so, are you getting smoke from the uh, fire? Where you live? No, no, I'm, I'm not. Mm-hmm. But yeah. see, see, we have a, we get the ocean breeze here, so we get we, all that kind of stuff blows away. So really, it's very uh-huh. rare that I get to smell smoke yeah. from a fire. You know, but yeah. Occasionally, but um, but you know, I haven't talked to Bobby Brzee. They live up in Hollywood Hills, and I imagine some of the fires are close to there. So it'd be interesting. When I talk to them here the next day or so and see how much they got to smell, you know, it's a little, I, little scary. I think I that's all the getting uh, the smoke has closing. been blowing for 3,000 miles. I would not be surprised. And, yeah, you know, that where they, you know, use away, it's near Bel Air. And on, when you got the Bel Air fire, they've been shutting down use away, you know, around here. That's just pretty, that's yeah. pretty big. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, from my 
from my brain, the report said that it was blowing out over the Pacific Ocean. Does that sound right? Most likely, yeah. 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 3,000 miles, though. Wow. Well, you know, California's a sort of a pretty big state, so, you know. Um, what's, scary, what's really sad, uh, there's a famous horse training track down in San Diego, and the mm. track caught on fire, and several horses lost their life down there, so... So far, we've been blessed not to lose any people that I'm aware of in the, in the uh-huh. recent fires. You know, um, yeah, like I, I haven't heard any reports about that either. Um, but the devastation of so many homes are lost again. Yeah. It, it sort of, so remember we had the fires about two months ago up in Northern California, and so many people lost their lives to that one um, up in wine country. I'm grateful so far we haven't lost anybody in this recent Yeah. Yeah. And see, about a year ago, there were the fires there pitching Ford, Forge, too. Yeah. yeah. But we've had just so many fires throughout the country here. It's, I don't know why they're so bad at this point, but something you would think could be done. Well, yeah. What, what, the, Talk about the Santa Ana winds, Walden. Yeah, the Santa Ana winds come, should, used to be traditionally September, and dries everything out. And, mm-hmm. you know, less than 10% humidity, 4 5% humidity, and everything's so dry. And some of the shrubs, like tumbleweeds and things around here, mm-hmm. become like starters. And with the winds, the embers when a fire does start, can travel between 2 to 10 miles away. So, a little fire somewhere, a little wind blows it, and it spreads. And they can't fight any fire when it gets to be 80 miles per hour wind. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just, you know, make sure everybody's safe. And, yeah. and then, then the other thing they worry about is when the wind goes away, then they don't know exactly what direction the fire is going to go. It's going to go based upon the the, fu- the fuel. And so a lot of times these fires can be in a dangerous spot because the fire will back, come back on them and move around wherever they can find fuel to eat. And they don't know exactly where all that's going to go. I think they carry fire blankets now that they can try to cover up if it comes back on them. I mean, they try, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's a hell of a chance to take, oh. you know. I don't, I don't know. I mean, God bless people who want to become fire people and police officers and things. It's not the, not the easiest job in the world. You know, and, uh, and think, think how many people. I, I guess my grandfather was. We had volunteer firefighters over the years in different small town America. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I, here, here. Here, most of uh, Kentucky and Indiana have volunteer fire def- uh, fighters. I mean, that's the norm here. And so, do they get any training? Do they know anything about, or they just show up? I mean, how do they? Oh, they they, they get training, but you know, it, it's just like you know uh, any other you know part time job. I mean, you know, that's you know they're if they you know to my knowledge they carry a radio. 
and when there's a call for a fire, you know, they jump in their truck and they have blue lights that they put in their uh, dash or on top of their car, and you know that mm-hmm. signifies they're a firefighter and you're to give them the right away. And then they get pushed to the firehouse, get on the fire truck, or you know, or some go directly to the fire if it's uh, we had a volunteer fire crew when we were growing up, but they had. Uh, a really loud horn that sounded, a siren sounded. And so the entire town knew that there was a fire, and that's how they contacted the volunteer fire people. Wow. Yeah, I, I, think, that ha- I think that was more what they did, you know, prior to, like, you know, the uh, citizen band radios and such. Probably mm-hmm. prior to 1970 or so. Yeah. Mo- yeah. So modern techniques. Mm, yeah, I'm sure they're notified, you know, by even the cell phone that they have that means. Mm-hmm. Our oh, friend sure. Tom in New York who listens but does not call, that's his, that's his famous line, I listen but I do not call. <laughs> he is a volunteer fireman, and I never thought to ask, because he's, he's really in a very small community up there, I never thought to ask him how he knows when a fire... Um, is happening, and, and his, the volunteer firemen need to be called in. They also have hazmat services, uh, the hazardous material, and he said that he was on one of those calls just within the last week or so. So I, I need to ask him some questions about that. So there you go. There's another topic. We need to talk to a volunteer firefighter someday. That's right. There we go. Tom in New York, maybe you will... Finally, give up just listening, and you will allow us to call you. Please call in. Maybe. Yeah, and maybe, yeah, right, I agree. But he keeps saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> He's just going that, to that, stick with listening. That needs to be, our, so maybe that needs to be the New Year's resolution. Have the, uh, listens, but, have the listen, but do not call in, people call in. Wow. And 200 of them today, and we're, we're very big in Italy right now. Mamma mia. <laughs> Italy. Italy, yeah, Pakistan, and Ghana. Those are some of the new countries that... Oh, my word. Yeah. Hello, everybody in so many countries. <laughs> wow. Anyway, so, so if you, you want to hear yourself at a more convenient hour, eventually you'll be hearing your podcast. On the Golden Day Hill Radio podcast over at Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, Google Music. But it's just it's fun to see, think that, holy cats, people are listening to Patricia all over the world. When Patricia and Walden. Ten years ago. Five years and ago. And us. Yeah, that's right. Long time. I, I'm, up, doing this I'm long up to the third ago. podcast in March, I think. I'm going, I'm going back to the beginning and listening to them all. Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I'm... So... Wow. And she is very popular in uh, Italy now, huh? Uh-huh. 93, pe- 93 downloads in the last 24 hours from Italy for Patricia. My goodness. 
Oh my goodness. Who would have thank you everybody? Who would have thunk it? <laughs> I'll go ahead and put Drake and Co had to lose in foreign languages, you know, basically Well you, you, you know I've been advocating for the ping network. I think this will will do nicely for now, you know. My yep. favorite colors are pink, blue, and purple. So if the pink network doesn't fly, maybe we can have a purple one. That's right. Are you hungry tonight? You were replying to my email about the snow cream. You just were like, oh, my goodness, there's cheesecake rolls, and there's this and that and this and that. and You just oh sounded my. hungry. Oh, my. It, <laughs> yeah, I'm hungry. Last night, I was, last week, I was really hungry. Did you get my, re- uh, sugar did you get my reply? I, I said, I hope they uh, stopped the, the vending machine well, and you had a, a nice stack of singles there. We can buy things on the I don't, vending machine. I didn't have any money with me last week. Shame on me to buy something oh, in gosh. the vending machine. <laughs> no, 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 no. We, we don't accept money except at the station. This is an all-volunteer station, but it does take money to keep it up and running. So for folks who are so inclined, you can go to yesterdayusa.com and find out how to donate to the station. But in the meantime, I'll accept cookies. <laughs> They need they need some suggestions on what to prepare. Yes, this is true. They make grill, grilled cheese sandwiches that are really good though. Oh yes, they have sent some chef salad and some what? There are two kinds of salads that they've got on the list. So a chef salad and a fruit salad. There's one I get fruit and, and cottage cheese with it. So that's oh a fruit salad. Yeah, there you go, a fruit play. <laughs> so yeah, those salads are good, and they're starting to send some to me. So yes, I did have some good stuff this week. Oh, we will go next Saturday. And then <laughs> I'm breaking my own rules here. I say, oh, I don't like going to Walmart, but I do. It's really nice to get out. So, yeah, we'll go to Walmart. Do you go by bus or, or shuttle, <laughs> or how do you get to Walmart? Say that again. Say that again, please. Do you go by bus or by shuttle to get to Walmart? No, they have a van. They take us in a van. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Limited number of people each time. You have to sign up for it. Now, do you go and get in one of the little uh, scooters around Walmart? You know, um, the last time, the first time I was there, I've only been there twice, the first time they only had three working carts and there were five of us 
So bless the, the person who drives the van said, it's okay, just follow me. And he, he took a basket and let us all throw, or let the two of us throw um, goodies in the basket. And he did it again the next time. Well, that's so nice. I think he deserves a medal. Well, you, you know, I'm, I'm like you. I don't like going to Walmart, but if nothing else, you can go to Walmart. Yeah, they, they have a lot of good stuff there for us. So making a list and checking it twice. Oh, no, 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 no. We're in the middle of finals. But we'll be done soon. We'll be done on Thursday. And then then how much time do you have to yourself? How much time do I have to to myself? How many days off off do you get for Christmas break, winter break? Whatever. I'll, I'll I'll go back the first weekend in January. Cool. So you get a fair amount of time. About three weeks. Very nice. So I'll be able to okay, listen so to can... all the podcasts and all the uh, shows. So you're going to be on every night yep. starting Monday yep. at mi- midnight? Yep. On the blue will be uh, Monday through Thursday for the next four weeks. And then uh, once we get closer to Christmas, Patricia and I will do some daytime stuff. She's going to go. Patricia's going to do some scouting. She's going to see if, if, if her place is uh, sound friendly, you know, during the day. So we'll find out. And so if so, we'll, we'll do some Saturday afternoons here in the next couple of weeks. And Would Christmas, you tell me again what kind of scouting I have to do? You're going to go see if, you're going to see if it, how noisy it is in your area during the day. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> when you said scouting around, I thought, well, I have a homework assignment, but I didn't know what it was. Yes. So I, I will be spending some a little bit of time checking out the vending machine corner <laughs> of the facility during the day and see whether or not it would be nice for us to have conversations we'll during have the day. Conversation on the side. And maybe this, you know, we'll try and go to 23rd. I think we'll get some on the 24th. Christmas Eve is Sunday, right? Yeah, it is. Christmas Sunday. Eve is a Sunday. Yeah. So yeah. I think I think Patricia and I will have we'll, we'll spend some time together Christmas Eve during the day. You know, I'll have a better idea. She'll have a better idea what we're doing here in the next few days. So and who knows? Maybe we'll spend some time on the 23rd during the day. I don't want to spoil Patricia out. You know, because after all, yeah. she she used to, she have done stuff with me. I feel so special. Well, Dan, thank you so much for sending the items uh, to go check out making snow ice cream. And I hope you have a good week. I will, and you do the same. Walden, you take care. I will, too, too, uh, Dan. Hey, how's how's your family doing out there? Is your mother doing better? No, she's still got some hiccups and things, so it's just she's tired of not feeling perfect. So that's just... uh, Yeah. You know, she's banging on the door trying to get everybody's attention. So, 
makes him happy. That way he always believes something he didn't know pays. He always believes it all. Oh, sure. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I made everybody, I made mom and dad's bed today, and I made mine yesterday. How efficient I am, huh? Anyway, let's go. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Okay, well, right. I'll uh, let you go. Thank you. Have a good week. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. That's us. Oh, I can hang on for for at least 12:30. Hello, this is John in Maryland. John, you stayed awake. My goodness gracious. I just got through to you. I, I, I know. I I'm ready to go to bed, though. I know. It's after midnight and you're still awake. I, I'm yeah. more special, John. What can I say? Oh, I, John, it's so to hear from you. Eight or, eight or ten inches of snow here. Holy cats. It looks beautiful. My daughter's streets up. Dead End Street, and it's got trees lined in the backyard. So you've got about 50 or 60 trees, and they're all white. <clears throat> it looks beautiful. Yeah. But uh, I tried calling you today, Walton. We've got all kind of bugs and whistles. Well, and probably the facts. You probably called my facts, and I was away from the studio number. But well, that's all right. But you can well, I wanted to. To get, mm -hmm. I, and I sent Patricia three emails, and they all come back to oh. address. Uh oh. Oh no. Well, the your recent one, I got one from you today, so something's working. Oh, does it? Yeah, I need Walden's address. Okay, I can give it to you now. Or yeah, well, I, I, Duke's I did or send it to you, John. Look, yeah, Patricia sent it to. Um, I tried sending you an email, I got your message on Facebook, John, and I sent it through Facebook, and then I tried yeah, to send it to I you. tried to, I, I clicked on the chat, uh -huh. and, and it came up, Walden, and I, I sent you a chat message, but I never got an answer, and then my daughter come home, and she, she looked at it, and it said that you're not a buddy of mine on the Facebook. <laughs> but I am, because I got your message, and I wrote back under a different part, and then... Then I try to send you an email, and your I I want the email I have for you is out of date. Okay, it came back. And so well, well, I can give it. I can send it to you now because I got John's wall uh, email today. So yeah, send send me John's email, and then Patricia just wrote you uh, my address. Uh, so okay. So try it again, John. Um, yeah, I lost it for some reason. Well, I was. And, and uh, like Patricia, I was in the hospital so long, and I had my computer was full of dust when I got back from the hospital, and my wife oh, my. turned around and she might have thrown it away. Oh, my my table that I got my computer on looks like Einstein's desk. <laughs> if you ever see a picture he, of Einstein, he and I got along very well because we both had 
He had a one of my editors had a messy desk contest one time, and I submitted a picture, and she said, "No, you will win hands down. We have to do this for our readers." (laughs) Okay, I'm looking um, at it now. Walden Hughes, twenty five, twenty seven Duke Place. I had that. I couldn't remember, but I couldn't remember. You remember, but I couldn't remember. Seriously, yep, you got my address. So, so well. anyway, I, I wanted to get that. Oh, thank you, John. I, I listened to your your voice for Todd's, and unfortunately, uh, I, I I can't get out much anymore. That's okay. I go, I'm going to church tomorrow, though. It's the second day of Advent. I'm going to go to make sure. But my son-in-law that is takes so me. That's so great. He's going to take me to the early service. Okay. Yeah. So you're going to be hiking through the snow? No, it's, the streets are pretty clear. Okay. But we're here at the foothills of the mountains, you know, and it snows so what's the most, a lot what's more the, here than it does in, you know, in central Maryland. What's the most snow you ever saw? Anything comes to mind, John? Any, any About 30-some inches. I can remember the blizzard of 66, mm-hmm. and let's see, I had a, we had a blizzard about eight years ago that was 30 inches. Is that a dusting, Patricia? No. <laughs> That's a dumping. <laughs> no, not a dusting. And uh, I saw the poor people in Baltimore with these side streets, mm-hmm. and the, the, the snow was up to the top of their cars, and they couldn't get out. Yeah, I felt sorry for those people. See, we're out here in the country; we don't have to worry about that. We just look at the beauty of the snow. Yeah. But uh, anyway, well, that's cool. How are you well, feeling, John? But anyway, I got Walden's address. How are you feeling, John? I'm feeling pretty good. I I, I got to go to the heart doctors. I go to the doctors this month three times. I got to go to the family doctor. And then I had to go to the uh, hematologist for my blood. They worry about, uh, what do you call it, uh, blood cancer? Uh, oh, leukemia. Leukemia, they, they worry about that. And uh, <clears throat> and then I got to go to the urologist for my, my bladder and all. He worries about that. So I'm, That's quite a lineup. He has pharmacy calls every day. <laughs> Every day I get a call from CVS Pharmacy. And between my wife oh my and myself, gosh. we keep them in business. One day I went in there, it was $1,100. Holy cats. It was my prescription for my blood thinner was uh, just the portion that I pay, not the, ins- the full cost. My, my cost was um, $465, and my wife had one for diabetes, and hers was over 500 and we Whoa. had a couple other little prescriptions in the Wow. And they said it was eleven hundred dollars when we got out of there. So, and that's that's what you had to leave there. That's what you paid? Yes. That was your out of yeah. pocket? That's what we paid, yeah. They paid. Wow. And my son in Texas, the one that had a real serious heart attack three years ago. Right. I remember, he had, yeah. He had a trouble with his main artery in his leg. His right leg, the blood yeah. wouldn't flow. So he went in uh, to Houston Methodist, and they put a stent in there. 
Right. Then he, he went home, and then uh, he had pain all week. So then he called the, it's, it's his uh, cardiologist back and told him that he had pain all week. And he says, well, I'm going to give you a, what do you call it, a sonogram and some other test. Right. And the uh-huh. the blood wasn't flowing correctly through his artery. So he's got to go back Monday, this Monday, and they're going to do it again. So, but other than wow. that, we're doing all right. So, not I wanted to tell you, but I, I'm getting forgetful for some reason. You're doing fine, John. But I, I, I remembered Pearl Harbor, but nothing on television did until late at night. I got on the History Channel. I, they did something on Pearl Harbor, but that's the only thing yeah. I saw. Yeah, last night I played the, the, the Declaration of Speech and the debate on Mutual, and I, so I played that late last night after we had our special guest uh-huh. show. But, uh, yeah, I, think I, wanted to, I wanted to tell you some Pearl Harbor stories, but I forgot them. <laughs> well, you know, I bet you'll be, I, you'll, you'll be able to have an opportunity next week. You know, so yep, we'll, and you know, I yeah. want to remind you, next year is going to be a hundred years since World War One ended. The the war the war that fought the end of all wars. The war to end all right. wars is a yeah. hundred years old yeah. next year, and I hope. As Fibber would say, the big one. The big one. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, you know, I think more a lot of people died in World War One, but that's a conti- World War Two was just a continuation yeah. of World War One. Yeah. And that, that's always been my belief. Yes. The treaties of Versailles spurred World War II. So that's my belief. Mm-hmm. Somebody else may have another yeah. opinion, but and that's not well, Hitler, you, you know. Me, I have a question for that. you. So. Go ahead, Patricia. Yeah. What's your question? Yeah, can you hear me okay, John? Yes, I can. Oh, good. Okay, my question is... What was Christmas like during World War II? You you have a great memory for for that well, period. Christmas during World War II, I can remember us going on a streetcar up into up into Baltimore City, looking for Christmas lights. We had one. We had they were all hooked up in series. When one went out, they all went out. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And we had a heck of a time finding a replacement bulb. We were going from store to store to hardware stores, anywhere we could think of to buy one one light, one Christmas light. We finally found one. But uh, Where did you find it? But as far as gifts and all for Christmas, wasn't anything made out of metal. <laughs> Everything was made out of cardboard. I can remember getting yeah. soldiers, toy soldiers, and they were cutouts, and then they they put a, they would color them different, you know, it was, uh, you just put them together, punch them out of a board and put them together, and that's, yeah. you couldn't, you couldn't John, where did you finally find the light? Yeah. Even, even the where, light. Did you, where did you finally but, find the light bulb? Where was the light bulb at, the one that you bought? We found, we found it in the hardware store somewhere. It wasn't even a new one. We didn't care as long as it worked, you know. And, uh, but if you like, if like your radio, you know, it was all tube radios in them days. And if you had a radio tube that blew out, you had a heck of a time getting it fixed. And it was all used parts. There was people that were buying old radios and taking the tubes out of them and storing them. And 
hopefully they, they had the one you wanted. But it was all used. It wasn't anything new. It didn't come in the boxes. When, they would put John, it in when the were bag these things just, finally available new? No, nothing was available new. Yeah. About 46, 47, 48. Sometime after the war, right, John, when things became yeah. available? Yeah. Then uh, I can remember, Walden, uh, it wasn't Army Navy. It was Army it was Navy Duke, and they played in, I probably told you this story, they played in with the old Baltimore Municipal Stadium. That was two before what we got now. Oh. And it was a, a fire trap. <laughs> I never knew but, that. And it was the Baltimore Municipal Stadium. Okay. And, and uh, I can remember my aunt used to go up to the USO. My aunt was fairly attractive. And she was a school school teacher, and uh, she would always go to the USO. And the USO was held in the Deutsches House. It was a German house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was the most popular place in town for servicemen to go for USO. And my aunt and whoever went with her talked to these two midshipmen who had came to Baltimore. Yeah, in them days... You got to Baltimore on a train. Okay. No transit. You had to take a train and then a streetcar. So she met her and her friend. They met two midshipmen, and she invited them for dinner at our house. And she told my mother that what she had done. And my mother said, well, what am I going to serve them? So, you know, my mother did a, a no-no, but it's over now. She, she went to the black market and got meat. Oh. That's the only place she could get it. And she, I, she got a roast. And she said, you know how much that paid for that roast? And I, I said, no. And she said, a dollar fourteen a pound. <laughs> <gasps> oh, my word. <laughs> In them days, she got roast for like 60-some cents a pound, if you could get it. And uh, we had to... My mother managed to put together a dinner for these two midshipmen. They, they had to take a train to Baltimore, and from Baltimore they had to take transit cars, and they had to go out into the county to get to, get to our house. So they, they I, I can see them walking down the front street, and they had their long uh, uh, blue uh, top coats on mm-hmm. with their white hats, and all the my mother's nosy neighbors were all looking out at these two midshipmen. What are they doing? And they walked into our house. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and and my uh, my aunt rounded up one of the girls in the neighborhoods. So the other midshipmen had, you know, it, it wasn't really a date. It was where could you go? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're out in the county. There aren't any nightclubs or nothing around out there. I mean, the biggest thing. Where I lived was the movies. <laughs> so they just we just sat around and had conversations. That's all we could do. But uh, they were very nice, and uh, they enjoyed the, the dinner my mother had prepared. And that was Navy Duke game. When did when did your mom tell you it was black market meat? You you tell the grocer you don't ahead of time that you need it, and you'll pay anything to get it. 
in the in the grocer does it. Wow. One that supplies it. So when did the mom tell you about what she did with this years later? When, when, when no, she, she told it, but she says, I can't get any meat, you know. And uh, so she went to the grocer and then on the side, and nobody can hear you. In them days, you didn't have supermarkets. We all had meat markets, right. grocery stores, and all things. He, he said, "I can get you meat, but it's going to cost you a dollar fourteen a pound." So my mother took it, wow. and she prepared the roast beef, but she bought it on the black market. So what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> and that, and uh, it was good for us because boy, we got to him a roast, you know. I can remember, uh, I think it was the AMP, they had a sale on coffee, so much per person. So my mother would get in line, and then a little further down in line, my father would get in line. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> he'd get a pound of coffee. And I said something, how come Dad's down that end of the line? My mother said, keep quiet, keep quiet. Because <laughs> oh, we were going to get an extra pound of coffee. But uh, I can remember one candy store had a big sign in the windows, bubble gum. And the line went around the block, kids waiting in line. And now wow. they got there, they were sold out. <laughs> but they didn't say anything because they got you in the store. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's how things, kind of how things went during the war. You know, where I went to school, we never had a cafeteria or anything like that. In fact, we never had a high school. Uh, our school only went up to the, let's see, ninth, ninth grade, I think. Yeah, we never had a high school. But if you had to go to high school, you had to get on a streetcar and go all the way to the end of the line. And they had a high school there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I remember last year, Patricia got the chance to interview my Uncle Jim for Christmas. And... Both my uncle Jim and my mom went to the same school. King's going to 12th grade within the same building in the, in the small town of Nebraska. Well, see, we never had 12 years of school. We only had 11. We never had 12-year system. You guys were smarter than kids from Nebraska, that why? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we only had uh, uh, the 11th grade. And... I can remember one of the schools, the high school that they had to go to. Mm-hmm. Uh, they graduated, some of them, not all of them, but some of them were like 17. Right. And they, and they got permission from their parents to go into the service. And uh, they they graduated them in January. So they could be, you know, enlist in the, yeah. the Army or, or whatever service they chose. My, my uncle...
can remember my mother, she used canned goods, if we had any. You had wash it, she'd wash it out, and then we had to flatten it. But we had to flatten it on the sidewalk. My mother wouldn't let us flatten it on, on the linoleum floor. <laughs> so we got to had to go outside and flatten them and put them in a box. And then when the, we called him the rag bone, come around with his horse and wagon, and he, he'd go up the alley, and he'd just holler, rag bones, rag bones. <laughs> and uh, he, would, he would give us money for it. He would put it on a scale. Of course, the scale wasn't correct. And uh, he would say 14 cents, 10 cents, you know, and he was scored. So, but there wasn't many uh, tin cans laying around anywhere. They were scrap. In fact, in back of the movie hall, there was a parking lot, and the parking lot was used to, for people to take all their scrap and pile it up. And it got pretty hot, but a lot of people would go over there and, uh, and um, they call it dumpster diving today, you know, see what's good in there. Right. And they would take a lot of things. Like uh, the kids would go over there and find an inner dude, you could make a slingshot, you know. <laughs> but uh, we, we'd look around in there, and then once a week, a big truck would come from Bethlehem Steel and load it all up, take it down, put it in there, burn us. And I can remember, if 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 you could get it during the war, the good humor man had his truck up on concrete box, no tires. If he wanted, if if he had ice cream, you see a big line there. If he had ice cream, if he didn't, it was nobody there. He did get a few things, but not not much. But uh, you know, people were really so honest. In them days, we had blackouts where they turn all the lights out, you know, yeah. and not never heard of anybody looting anything or stealing anything or breaking it. Never heard about anything like that. And they had many opportunity, as we had a couple times a week, we'd have an air raid because we lived in an area where they had a steel plant, right. electronics. We had an airport and the, the harbor. In fact, there was one time a U-boat came into the harbor, but he escaped. He got out. He came into the harbor. So we were in an area where it was, you know, a lot of industry. Dendix Westinghouse had big plants. General Motors, they made these, uh, we call them half tracks. They were half tractor and, and they had steering wheels in the front. They made those at the General Motors plant. And then right next to the General Motors plant was Western Electric, and they made cables for all the radios and, and, and for the, uh, the pipeline that went underneath the English Channel. Right. You know, they, 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 they had one for fuel and one for uh, uh, electricity. And, they, and uh, Western Electric uh, made those. Cause my wife's father worked down there. He would tell us about what they did during the war. And my father, before the war, he got called back to work. He didn't work for three years in the Depression. And around 1935, 1936, they called him back to work. He had all these orders from Japan for toys. Wow. Home steel for toys. <laughs> Those toys were shooting back at us. Yeah. 
But uh, John, what, what kind work, of toys uh, were they? What toys were they asking for? No, they weren't. They, that's what they put down. They wanted to uh, steal for making toys, you know, sheet metal. He roll it. He would roll the metal. You know, he worked in the tin mill, and he roll it. They take a, a slab of fixed steel and reduce it down to like three sixteenths, you know, quarter inch. You know, and uh, Japanese, they buy all they could buy all they could get, and uh, and then all of but who knew? You know, that there was going to be a war. And I'm talking about middle 1930s. I mean, my father never worked for three years during the Depression. And we never had it, and we never accepted any wealth. Well, we didn't have welfare. We had what they call relief. Never never accepted one penny of relief. We made out. But, I mean, my, my brother, my sister, and myself, we didn't know we were poor. Yeah. <laughs> but that, those are the kind of things that, that we did during the war. And uh, I think it was... Uh, I often, that's why I have a lot of memories about what we did, because we made up our own games and all, you know. You know it's not like it is today. I mean, we used to get a, if somebody would happen to get a baseball, oh boy, we would play with that. And we'd play till the cover come off of it, and then we would go over to the dime store, and we'd get a rope, a roll of tar tape, real sticky tape, and then we'd wrap the baseball in that tape, and it was so sticky on the hands, we took it, we rolled it around in, in dirt, you know, to keep it from sticking to your hands. And no such thing as a broken baseball bat. We go around, we find as small snail as we could find, and we put that bat back together. Because you couldn't get one. Yeah. But uh, it was a lot of fun. Well, John, I hope Patricia and I talk to you next week or sometime during in the holiday season. Yeah, I hope so. We better. Maybe I'll... Yeah. I'm going to jump in bed right now. All right, John. I was going to come over here tomorrow morning and pick it up for church. Sounds good. So. But you, if I don't see you, happy... Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. You too, John. It's always... Thank you, John. To, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. We love talking to you, John. All right, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. It's almost my witching time. Monday, and that's on the Red Network, right? On on Monday at midnight? It's still on the blue. Okay. I'm glad you know because I never do. Okay. I will talk with you on Monday.
Okay. Good night. Jaws Profesh items with two handles with one ray bream 94120 unloading jaw cat OK but enter. Now, the station with the most trusted and listened to news organization in the world. 790 KABC, LA's most interesting talk station. 790 Good evening, everyone. Ray Brain with you until 5 this morning. In a couple hours, we will talk about the GAT vote. We will not ignore it. But in the next couple of hours, we're going to be talking with Sam Frank. He's our guest. He's written a new book, yet to be published, but he has a contract with the publisher, and he'll tell you all about it. If you've ever been a Ronald Coleman fan, I hope you'll stay tuned. Let's say hello to Sam Frank. Sam, glad to have you back with us. I'm very glad to be back with you. Tell me about the genesis of this book. Well, this book began nearly 30 years ago when I first fell in love with Ronald Coleman on the early show here on Los Angeles Television. And you uh, heard him do the, If I Were King. Well, I first saw that in October of 1965 on KNXT's early show. And that began my obsessive love affair with the man because he was urbane, charming, warm, personable, and he became a father figure to me. And I was trying... He, he became a father figure? What do you mean by that? Well, my own father was very much an authoritarian and uh, illiterate. He did not believe in reading very much aside from newspapers. And my mother was supportive of me, but something of a crass vulgarian. So between the two of them, I had no mm -hmm. intellectual sustenance. My grandfather was my real father. He would give me books all the time and... Uh, uh, he I had the report with. He was my real father. Well, my, my grandfather died in December of 1963 of a heart attack at 72, and I had no one to turn to. And suddenly I discover on the early show and the late show these wonderful old movies with Ronald Coleman. Here was a man with a debonair manner, a gorgeous voice, a uh, man who moved with grace and aplomb, and who dealt with themes of integrity and idealism, and I was swept away. Before that, my favorite star had been Gary Cooper for much the same reason. In fact, Gary Cooper was influenced by Coleman. They had first worked together in 1926 on a Western called The Winning of Barbara Worth, and it was Gary Cooper's introduction as an actor to the American screen, and Coleman advised him on underplaying, and uh, Cooper took his, uh, his cues from Coleman's underplaying. Not that the two had similar mm -hmm. types of movies they made. 
Well, for years I've tried to write a biography, but publishers largely haven't been interested because his life wasn't sensationalistic. Well, in 1987, uh, no, 88, along came a fellow named Jim Parrish, who is a film historian, and he was putting together a series of books for Greenwood Press in Westport, Connecticut, called Biobibliographies in the Performing Arts. And each of these books is a critically annotated inventory of every aspect of a particular star's life. So they signed me to a contract to write this book on Ronald Coleman. The book will be available for sale uh, through special order at bookstores, but mainly for, it's for sale to colleges and college libraries and public libraries. It'll be available at Eddie Brandt's and uh, Samuel French Bookstore. The, the cost will be something like 55 or 60 bucks. Wow, that's an expensive book. Yes, well, I don't set the price, but uh, I've spent thousands of hours over the last six and a half years researching it. Uh, spending hundreds of hours watching movies, listening to radio shows, spent three months in UCLA's microfilm library to double-check every detail. And when it came to the radio shows, I was absolutely astonished. It turned out that Coleman had hosted or starred in or been a regular on 400 shows between the, the pr premiere of his movie Bulldog Drummond in 1929 and his reading a, an abridgment of A Christmas Carol on NBC's Monitor in December of 56. Mm. Now, I've heard about 280 of these shows, and half of them are thanks to John and Larry Gaspin at KPCC. For the yes, they were on the show with me not long ago, and of course they're the driving force of Spurred Back that just had their annual convention, and they did such things as recreation of Let's Pretend with Arthur Anderson, mm -hmm. and uh, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Unfortunately, they couldn't recreate a Coleman program because who would you get to impersonate Ronald Coleman? But for the cost of blank tape, they sent me 140 shows, mm. which is a lot to listen to. And listening to those shows, you find out various facets of Coleman's radio career. He did played villains on radio. He sang on radio, called a square dance on radio. He did all kinds of things. And he used to guest on the Benny Show a lot. Yeah, he and his wife, Benita, started in December of 1945 because Benny thought that it would be terrific to have this sound effect of him walking across the lawn to his neighbor Ronald Coleman's home. Benny being a, um, a money-grubbing Philistine and the Coleman's being the height of, uh, of, of high culture. Mm -hmm. So they made quite a contrast and the contrast was so hilarious that uh, after two shows in December of 45 they were signed to a, a contract to appear as themselves three, three to six times a season. Mm -hmm. So they were on that show for 21 episodes over six years, plus Jack Benny's 20th anniversary show in 1951. Uh, by that time, they had gotten their own radio series, The Halls of Ivy. But we're getting way ahead of the story. What we have is an amazing career that spans from his amateur acting in school uh, at the Hadley Boys School in 1905 in London? In, uh, no, this wasn't in London. This was in, uh, well, where was it? It was in Sussex, I believe. Yeah, he's going to check his, uh, his documents here. It was in Sussex. And he uh, did such things as the Admirable Crichton and Fanny's first play. And uh, he once had a member of Sir George Alexander's company come over to see him. George, Sir George Alexander was in the turn of the century, a very famous producer and director, and he said the member came over from his company and looked right over him. <laughs> he, it was too, too early for him. What about his motion picture career? His motion picture career began 
abortively in 1917 when he was approached by a man named George Dewhurst. At the time, Ronnie was uh, appearing in a play called Damaged Goods in London. Damaged Goods was a play about syphilis. He was playing a social climbing notary who has contracted syphilis from a prostitute after a, a bachelor party. Mm. And his doctor advises him to wait three or four years to get married in order to go through a proper cure. Now, this play takes place at the turn of the century, uh, just before Dr. Ehrlich's magic bullet came in, mm -hmm. his, his syphilis cure. And uh, Georges Dupont is the character he plays, and he disregards the doctor's advice, takes a, a quack cure, gets married, infects his wife with syphilis, who then infects their daughter. And in, in Act Two of the play, he discovers what has happened, and he has an hysterical, nervous breakdown on stage. Now, if you've ever watched Coleman's movies, you know that he is the epitome of understatement, that he doesn't have emotional outbursts. How many motion pictures did he do? He did 55 features and another 14 short subjects, documentaries, and newsreels. Hmm. His uh, greatest, I guess, has to be Lost Horizon. That's the part for which he's best remembered, because he fit the role of... Robert Conway like a glove. It was him playing him. Do you know what's playing in our house right now? My uh, sister and her husband are there, and they're watching Lost Horizon, and would you believe they have never seen it before? <laughs> I said, well, you've got to watch it. I'm going to be talking about Ronald Coleman tonight, and you're going to love I said, do you remember FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, talking about Shangri-La, that his estate, uh, uh, you know, uh, Camp David, he called it his Shangri-La. And also when James Doolittle bombed Tokyo in 1942, and FDR was asked where the bomber planes came from. He said, well, possibly they came from Shangri-La. <laughs> it's nice to have that kind of a, a reference from a president, right? Yes, it was one of Roosevelt's favorite movies. In fact, in fact, Eleanor Roosevelt wrote a newspaper column that it was the Roosevelt family's favorite movie. They'd seen it many times at the White House. All right, we have a lot of uh, audio clips and a couple of surprise guests that we'll be uh, talking with very shortly regarding the life of uh, Ronald Coleman. And if you want to talk about Ronald Coleman, now is your chance to get in. Sam Frank, what's your book going to be called? Well, this book has a very dry title. It's called Ronald Coleman, a Biobibliography. However, the biography that follows is going to be an unconventional biography. The title will be Gentleman Adventurer, The Life of Ronald Coleman by Sam Frank, and Ronald Coleman. He will be the co-author. Really? How do you how do you do that? <laughs> well, in my research, I read hundreds of magazine and newspaper articles, and I came across 24 substantial sit-down interviews plus three magazine articles he himself had written. By if when I if I pluck all the quotes from all these articles and shape and organize them, I can do what Joan Benny did with her father Jack and his unpublished manuscript, which is I can alternate between my telling Coleman's story and Ronnie Coleman telling his life story in his own reserved, measured way. It has never been done before. Why not? Nearly four years after his death, have him tell in part his own life story. All right. If you want to talk with Sam Frank, I hope that you will give us a call. Our phone number is 1-800-222-KBC. If you want to talk about Ronald Coleman... Now's your chance. This is 790 KBC Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. We've been telling. All right, our phone number.
Strawberries, 1-800-222-KBC. Looking at the weather, you got to look very carefully because there's a lot of dense fog along the coast through early Friday morning. Widespread fog near the... I ran into some of it. Uh, I mean, it is dense. Widespread fog near the coast with areas of dense fog, mostly clear inland. And then for uh, later in the day, we're going to have low clouds and local dense fog near the coast. It's not going to burn off. Otherwise, mostly sunny. Southwest to west winds 10 to 15 miles per hour. San Fernando, San Gabriel, and San Bernardino Valleys. Sunny afternoon sea breezes 10 to 15 miles per hour. Highs in the upper 60s to lower 70s. And no fog. And that is the weather. You're tugging at my shirt again. What time is it? The 790-KBC Talk Radio Time is now 20 past the hour. Right, Clarence? <laughs> right. All right, we have Charles on the line in Los Angeles who wants to talk about Ronald Coleman. And uh, let's see what Charles has to say. Charles, good morning. You're on KBC with Sam Frank. Uh, yes, sir, Ray. How's it going, Ray? Okay. Uh, Mr. Frank, uh, uh, there's a, currently there's a commercial out with uh, this character, Toucan Sam. Oh, yes, that's Paul Fries. Right. Uh, he did that for years. He, Paul Fries was an expert at imitating the voices of various actors. And Toucan Sam ran for, for, for decades until Fries died. Fries also did Coleman as Ape in the TV's cartoon series George of the Jungle. Mm. And Freeze also appeared on the Halls of Ivy radio series once as a pretentious abstract artist. So, yes, uh, Freeze had stuff to do directly and indirectly with Coleman's career. Mm. I saw on recently, I wonder, does the family get anything from that? Any residuals or anything? Coleman's family? Right. Were they getting money from that? Nope. They don't get anything at all? Nope. Because all of Coleman's, all the stuff that Coleman did was pre pre 1960, when uh, Ronald Reagan, then the president of SAG, signed a, a new union agreement with the studios, which we won't get into. Right. But uh, all of Coleman's stuff, he he rece received only his uh, paychecks for it, with the exception of two movies he produced in the late 30s, which failed. But uh, like every other star of that period. Uh, he received uh, what his contract called for, which when he was a star was usually something like twenty to twenty-five thousand a week before taxes, and the taxes were heavy. Mm, that's a shame. But you know, I thought I mean, there's some guy handles the estates of these various actors and actresses who died, like Marilyn Monroe and uh, so forth, and they get money for it. Well, as a matter of fact, when Coleman died. Uh, his estate was valued at just a little over a million dollars, mm -hmm. much of which went into a trust fund for his daughter, Juliet, mm -hmm. so that when she re reached the age of 25 in the late 60s, mm -hmm. she inherited millions and promptly bought a castle in Spain where she lives with her, her, painter, her husband, painter husband, Jim Toland. Mm -hmm. Didn't she write a book about him two or three years ago? Yes, uh, two or three years ago. She wrote a book about him uh, nearly 20 years ago mm -hmm. called uh, a very, Ronald Coleman, A Very Private Person. Mm -hmm. It was a very poorly researched book. She, she interviewed a lot of people without really challenging what they had to say about her father or doing much documentary research, which I did for my book. Mm -hmm. So a lot of, there's a lot of erroneous in, information in her book. There was a thing on the last week about Gone with the Wind, how they made the movie. In the process of how they made the movie, they showed uh, a portion of Tale of Two Cities, and they showed uh, Coleman, uh, he's at the guillotine. Mm -hmm. and, uh, well, Coleman was Selznick's second choice to play the part of Rhett Butler if he couldn't get Clark Gable, and right. Coleman was very keen on playing it. Uh, he, in, a, in a letter to Selznick, 
which I quote in my book, mm. he said that the, he's very keen on playing the part so long as, so long as it isn't too emasculated for the screen. Mm. And his choice for playing Scarlett O'Hara was Katherine Hepburn. Mm. So Coleman could have done the role had, he ch had Clark Gable chosen not to. And after a while, Coleman decided he really didn't want to play that kind of roguish, scampish part and uh, just dropped it. Mm -hmm. But he was under serious consideration as choice number two. What was that movie movie with Basil Rathbone? Not Tell to the Cities, but the other one where he If played. I Were King. Right, yeah. Uh, yes, he played Francois Villon and Rathbone played King Louis XI. In fact, Rathbone got an Oscar nomination as Best Supporting Actor. All right, Charles, thank you very much for the call. My guest is Sam Frank. We're talking about his new book that will be published when? Should be published next May or June. It's in production, scheduled, in schedule right now. All right, Sam Frank, who's written a biography on Ronald Coleman. This is 790 KBC Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. Well, it may be a little hard to find the sunny side of the street near the coast today. Widespread fog near the coast with areas of dense fog, and you're going to hit it right now along the PCH. Low clouds and local dense fog early near the coast, otherwise mostly sunny. Southwest to west winds 10 to 15 miles per hour in the afternoon. I mean, the onshore flows back, the sea breeze is back. San Fernando, San Gabriel, and San Bernardino Valleys, don't worry about fog. It says uh, here, sunny, and afternoon sea breezes 10 to 15 miles per hour. Upper 60s to lower 70s, and that is the weather. You're tugging at my shirt again. What time is it? The 790K ABC Talk radio time is now 29 past the hour. And uh, with us is Sam Frank. He's got a forthcoming book called uh, Ronald Coleman. It's a biography and a... Biobibliography. It's, it's, it's a what? A biobibliography. A biobibliography. Well, To be okay. followed by a biography. Okay, a biobibliography. <laughs> Call it what you want. <laughs> well, it's part biography, but mostly uh, critically annotated inventory of everything he ever did in his entire career. He uh, would uh, show up on programs like Suspense. A program well calculated to keep you in suspense. Yes, he appeared on that show six times, and for me, the best of them was A Vision of Death, which he did twice. Now, the clip that I've chosen is from the remake, which I thought was far superior. Uh, he, play, he and Mary Jane Croft play a phony mentalist team who work the nightclub circuit. All right, let's take a listen. Really good act. Smart, informal. Occasionally humorous and always mystifying. Well, the act always began with music, never with the cliché fanfare of trumpets or roll of drums. I would saunter out to the center of the floor and say something like, Good evening. You are about to witness an exhibition of mental telepathy. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce Aurora, my wife? Ah, they never fail to give her a hand. What would they applaud? Why, the vision she presented as she came toward me. There has never been anyone as lovely as Aurora, the most beautiful flesh in the profession. Now, Aurora, would you care to tell the audience or shall I? You tell them, Judd, while I tie the blindfold across my eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, all mind readers employ a gimmick. A gimmick is a trick, a device. For example, 
when the mind reader, threading his way through the audience, says to the mind reader sitting blindfolded on the stage, a lady has given me a small object which I now hold in my hand, what is it? And the mind reader sitting blindfolded replies, a silver coin. The answer has not come through mind reading, no. It has come through the gimmick, a cue or signal communicated through the very question itself. But we don't do that. We do not. You will notice, ladies and gentlemen, that I never speak to Aurora at all. Now, are you ready, Rory? Ready, just. Here we go, then. Now, uh, you, sir, you have something? Good. Concentrate upon it like a good chap. And the you, The gentleman have... holds a coin in his hand. It's a Mexican peso bearing the date 1892. <laughs> oh, oh, that's very clever of you, madam. I'll be surprised if she gets this one. <laughs> the now, lady holds in her hand... Her other hand. <laughs> yep, a sucker once born remains a sucker till death. The audience never realized, never in all the years we worked, that although I was not speaking to Aurora directly, my chatter nevertheless was loaded with signals and cues for her guidance. By revealing the gimmick, we concealed the gimmick, and that lieutenant is the knee plus ultra of gimmicks. Ah. One of his rare villainous roles on radio. He didn't do uh, villains normally. Normally not, but there were three times he did. Once was this show. Uh, he did this show twice. This is the, the better of the two versions. He also played a corrupt judge in the Anatole France farce, The Man Who Married a Dumb Wife. And he played the Raja of Rook, in The Green Goddess on Theater Guild on the Air. And the story behind that one is that he had actually appeared in the Broadway production in 1922 and had been fired after a week on Broadway. Don't know why he was fired, but over 25 years later, he was approached to play the George Arliss part, and here it was, revenge time, all those years later. So he finally got to play the villainous part, and he plays it magnificently. Let's say hello to Chico in Monterey Park. Buongiorno, Chico. Good evening, gentlemen. Mr. Frank Ray. Mr. Frank, what I remember best about Ronald Coleman, but before that, I rank him among the very greatest of all time. Uh, I remember him, besides Lost Horizon, a movie I saw uh, still in high school 57 years ago, Tale of Two Cities. Refresh yeah. my memory if you can, when, when he changed places with the the prisoner and was on the scaffold. Yes, that he played the role of Sidney Carton, an alcoholic British lawyer who has a, a major death wish. He and was ready to lose his head to the guilty, and he, he was giving comfort to the girl. I can't remember those last lines he said. Oh, well, those last lines that he said were, it's a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done. It's a uh -huh. far, far better rest I go to than I, I have ever known. And that was a role that he had coveted for 10 years. That was the part he most wanted to play. That's what I remember. And he played it beautifully. And it's on home video. It's on tape and Laserdisc. In fact, nearly all of Coleman's sound movies are on videotape and or Laserdisc. So they're widely available at your local video store. Great. I'm going to get that for my daughter. Do not get the videotape version of A Tale of Two Cities, though. Get oh. the Laserdisc version. I'll tell you why. The videotape version is run at about 25 frames a second to save on tape. It runs You're kidding. You can't see the difference, but it runs about five minutes short. The Laserdisc version is a crisper-looking copy, runs 126 minutes. Coleman shows up about 23 minutes into the movie, and he steals the show. Uh, well, good hunting, Ray, and I'll see you tomorrow night.
Oh, you're going to be there. Yes, I'll be there. All right. Nothing could keep me away from you. You know that. Uh, how about and, uh, that? Frank, Mr. Uh, Frank, all right, thank Chico. Bye-bye. Uh, my guest is Sam Frank, who has got a forthcoming bio-bibliography on Ronald Coleman. If you're a Ronald Coleman nut, if you want to know more about Ronald Coleman, now is your chance to get in. I would like to give the... Uh, the name of my editor and the address for people to write with advance orders. His name is George Butler. Uh, he happens to be a doctorate in English, a very nice fellow. Sounds a lot older than his 32 years, though. I've dealt with anyway, what's often. the address? The address is Greenwood Press mm -hmm. at 88 uh, Post Road West, Box 5007, Westport, Connecticut, 06881. That's 88 Post Road West, Box 5007, Westport, Connecticut, 06881. Greenwood Press is an academic and reference book publisher. Mm -hmm. All right. We'll uh, return with another caller in a moment. Our phone number is 1 800 222 KBC. Any experiences with Ronald Coleman? Do we have any uh, people who are thespians, actors who maybe have worked with Ronald Coleman? If so, give us a call. 1 800 222-KABC. This is 790-KABC Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. Oh, that sounds like a little Carmen Cavallaro. It is, isn't it? The old poet of the piano. And a little fascination. Yes. All right, our phone number is 1-800-222-KABC. We got fog out there tonight. I mean, we have fog. PCH was so foggy in Santa Monica. Uh, widespread fog near the coast with areas of dense fog. Dense fog in Santa Monica on the coast. And uh, looking at um, what is going to be later today, low clouds and local dense fog near the coast early. Otherwise, mostly sunny. We'll have those uh, westerly winds, 10 to 15 miles per hour. Highs in the lower 70s. Friday is going to be a beautiful day in the San Fernando, San Gabriel, and San Bernardino Valleys with a high in the lower 70s, sunny and afternoon sea breezes and no fog. How about that? That's our weather. Oh, you're tugging at my sleeve again. What? What time is it? Oh, yes. The 790 KBC Talk Radio Time is now 20 before the hour. Sam Frank is with us. We're talking about Ronald Coleman. He's got a forthcoming bow, Bigley. Bibliography, that's a mouthful, you know that. Well, what it amounts to is that I have uh, compiled the cast, the credits, the plot synopses on all his stage plays, his radio work, his movies, etc. And for those who are radio buffs, the radio chapter is a particular revelation because it shows all the war bond, war relief, and charity work he did during World War II, the four radio series of which he was a part, particularly Jack Benny, The Halls of Ivy, and Favorite Story, and it will give you everybody who he ever worked with. And the index runs 14 pages and nearly 1,000 items. It's a who's who of Hollywood and the golden age of radio. He worked with, oh, more than two-thirds of the, of the uh, veteran radio actors we know and love from all those great old shows. If, if it was radio, he worked with them. NBC did a special at the death of uh, President Roosevelt in 1945, April 15, 1945. And uh, Ronald Coleman gave a very moving speech at the end. No, the opening. The opening. Okay. Yes, yes, he did. All right. Don't fool with the guy who wrote about it. He knows everything. <laughs> yes. He, sh he opened the show with a specially written 
dedication to Roosevelt. All right, let's listen. This is Ronald Coleman. This afternoon, there is white snow on the mountains that view Hollywood from the distance. The sun shines brightly, the sky is blue, and the air is warm with spring. It might be any day in California, for nature neither knows nor cares about the trials and tribulations of man whom she both fights and serves. She looks upon life and death as one, for she has long fashioned either from the same material, and just as the one is interchangeable with the other, so in nature's book is each indestructible. is eternal, death is eternal. Today in Hollywood, we of the entertainment profession unite to pay tribute to one whose work, as with nature's work, will likewise prove eternal. Uh, that's quite a, uh, that's quite a tribute. Yes, elsewhere, Moving, in, the, else, elsewhere in the show, he did a very, uh, variation on Lamentations that was transcribed by Carlton E. Morse. In fact, Coleman uh, several times on radio did biblical readings or extracts, and in the early 50s for RCA Records, he did a 20-minute record called Readings from the Bible. Mm -hmm. He was a religious man himself, uh, not what I'd call a devout Christian or a church-going Christian, but quietly religious. He uh, was, was raised in the Church of England. Mm -hmm. All right, in a moment, we're going to be calling Anna Lee. She co-starred with uh, Ronnie in a, in a movie. Yes, in a 1941 comedy called My Life with Caroline. Not a very good movie at all. It, it failed at the box office, and justifiably so. But uh, she did the best she could with uh, an airhead character. She's, she is an, a bubble-headed wife married to a publisher played by Ronald Coleman, who is, quite frankly, a louse in the movie. And if it weren't played by Ronald Coleman, you'd have no reason to root for the guy. But she had a pleasant experience working with him. And for those who are fans of General Hospital, Anna Lee has been on that show now for 20 years. She, isn't, she, she lives in Beverly Hills. She's an invalid in a wheelchair, but a gracious lady in her late 70s, a delightful actress, and a delightful person to know. All right. Uh, we'll be calling her very shortly. Our phone number is 1-800-222-KABC. And um, I guess we'll take another call. I, let's say hello to Richard in Burbank. Richard, you're on KABC. Uh, yes, I'd like to ask the caller, uh, the, I'm the caller, the uh, author, if he's ever been up to uh, the Santa Barbara Cemetery where Ronald Coleman is buried. Oh, yes. I went up there nearly 20 years ago. And the tombstone, the epitaph on the tombstone is Prospero's final speech from the Tempest that ends with, uh, uh, th these are the things that dreams are made on. Uh, this is the stuff that dreams are made on, and our life is rounded with a sleep. I've been up there to the, the tombstone. Yeah, it's a beautiful black marble with the curtains parting on it. Yes. And Out of all the hundreds of movie celebrities, that, the grave sites that I've been to, that's the most spectacular one of all. He also read the epitaph on the Halls of Ivy on the final episode. Which, which was a fitting end to the series, although he didn't know the series was coming to an end at the time. Schlitz Beer, which sponsored the series for three seasons, wanted to move wholesale into TV, but they decided not to take the Halls of Ivy with them for whatever reason, I don't know. When it, when it went to television, it really fell flat 
because what works on radio sometimes, especially a what's called a bone mode talking head radio show, well, there's no physical action in the TV show and very little humor. It came across as dry and stuffy and pompous. It died in the ratings in this one season on TV. That's too bad. All right, thank you very much, Richard. All right, thank you. Take care. Bye -bye. Our phone number is 1-800-222-KABC. In a moment, we'll be talking with Anna Lee. This is 790 KABC Talk Radio. I'm Ray Bray. My guest is Sam Frank, who has written a bio-bibliography on Ronald Coleman. Phone number is 1-800-222-KBC. Weather-wise, there's a lot of fog out there along the coast. Drive carefully tonight if you have to be out on the road. And that uh, low clouds and local dense fog will continue through the morning. And then later in the day, it'll be mostly sunny. Southwest to west winds 10 to 15 miles per hour in the afternoon. Highs in the upper 60s to lower 70s. San Fernando, San Gabriel, and San Bernardino Valleys. No fog, mostly clear, light winds, and highs in the lower 70s. And that is our weather. You're tugging at my shirt again. What is this? What time is it? Oh, yes. It's 10 minutes now before the hour here at KABC. And with us is Sam Frank, who has written a biobibliography of Ronald Coleman. And uh, co-starring with Ronald Coleman in a 1941 comedy is... Anna Lee, she's on the line with us right now. Let's say hello. Anna Lee, Ray Bream at KBC, along with Sam Frank. How are you? Is this Sam? Yeah. Hold on. Sam. There's Sam. Hello. Here I am, Anna. How are you? Well, uh, having worked all day at ABC on General Hospital, I'm just managed to stay awake. And now you're on KBC Radio. <laughs> well, sir, yes, isn't that nice? <laughs> Being at home again. You, you worked at K ABC Television today, so you're... you're uh, thoroughly a part of the ABC family. Right. I've, I've been under contract there since, uh, well, for 17 years. That's quite a long run. Long run. So uh, I love ABC. <laughs> Obviously. Anna, back in the uh, early 40s, when you got the call from your then-husband, Robert Stevenson, to come to Hollywood to appear in a movie with Ronald Coleman, how did you feel about that, leaving England as you were, your star was rising, and rising over there to come to up anchor and come over here to star with Coleman? Well, actually, I wasn't in England. You see, I was in San Francisco. Ah. But uh, that was my, uh, he was trying to get me back to, to Los Angeles. I wanted to go home to England, and he wanted me to come back to Los Angeles. So when he told me that, I, that, uh, that they wanted me to play opposite Ronald Coleman, I just thought he was joking, and it was a ruse to get me back. And it took me, I think it took him three days to drag me down from San Francisco to when I realized it, it was it was true. And uh, how did you, when you first met Ronnie, uh, how did you hit it off? Um, well, I liked him enormously, and of course I'd, I'd uh, thought he was a, a great actor. I'd seen many of his movies, and I was uh, very, very thrilled to be working with him, having seen that. But when I met him, he was, he was very reserved. Um, I, I, it took me three weeks, I think, before I, could, I called him anything but uh, Mr. Coleman. Mm -hmm. uh, you've told me in the past that you had some trouble with the script because the, the character of Caroline was not a very well-defined one. Uh, how did Col Ronnie help you uh, work your way through the part? Well, he, he was very helpful. 
Uh, but you see, I was supposed to be, I was married to him, and I was obviously, I lo obviously loved him. But then I was also in love with two other men at the same time. And uh. so it was, it was complicated. It was complicated for him because he wanted to get me back. So, I mean, how did Ronnie help you through the part in terms of acting and fleshing out Caroline's character? Well, it was just a question of, uh, oh, oh, he, was, he was very helpful. He had, you know, if he had a little suggestion, he'd make it. But uh, as I say, we never got, we never got really close. I mean, I, I liked him, but I was in awe of him, I think, more than anything else. So generally you found it a very pleasant experience. But it, it was, and uh, Lewis Milestone was directing it, and we all got along very well. And today, people who want to watch Anna Lee can watch her every day on General Hospital on ABC. That's quite a, quite a long distance from, uh, uh, from the part I played Caroline, <laughs> Caroline to, 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 to Lila Quartermain. Well, but you've had a long and uh, honorable and distinguished career, nevertheless. Well, it, it has been, because I've been in show business for over 60 years, 65 years, I think. And I've been under contract with ABC since, uh, uh, well, for 17 years. I'm going into my 17th year now, and they've just renewed my contract for another two years. Anna Lee, this is Ray Bream. Let me ask you about uh, one quick question about Ronald Coleman. Mm -hmm. How would you describe his acting? How is he what? How would you describe his acting? Um, that's a hard question to answer. Uh, he was he, he was very um, well disciplined. I mean, he always he was always arrived on time, and he always knew exactly what he was going to do. And of course, his voice was so wonderful. So, uh, so there, what, was there ever a part that he he couldn't uh, adapt to? because if, if you look at his his uh, roster of films they were all all the parts he played were, were, were different in character i mean he wasn't a a, a, a one-man one like gary cooper or john Wayne. he wasn't stereotyped then no he wasn't stereotyped well that's very interesting anna lee thank you very much for being with us well it's very nice very nice to be back at abc tonight yes thank you very much Anne. have yes. a good evening all right bye -bye. goodbye now all right, let's take a call from Weldon in Costa Mesa. Weldon, you're on KABC with Sam Frank. Hi, Sam. Good evening. Um, I know Don Quinn created the Horse of Ivy. How did the Coleman's finally get on the show? Cause I don't think they were the first. No, Gail Gordon and Edna Best were right. the, uh, the, the couple in the pilot right. that was uh, uh, taped in June of 1949. But the uh, Young and Rubicam, which was the ad agency for C for Schlitz, didn't want them. The pilot was a misfire because the, the two actors were miscast and had no chemistry. But that's not why they didn't go on. They wanted a couple with proven star uh, appeal. And the Colemans had made a sensation on the Jack Benny show. And Nat Wolf, who was part of the Young and Rubicam agency, as well as being an agent, suggested his friends, the Colemans. Uh, so they were approached and signed. It, that was that simple. And if you listen to the two pilot, the pilot and the actual show on the air back to back, it's obvious that Gail Gordon, however low key he plays it, is out of water trying to play an urbane, charming college president. But that's how it came about. Now, the the like radio as well as Ronald seemed to do. Absolutely, they loved it. They loved appearing as a couple. Great. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. All right, let's take another quick call. We've got uh, Tom on the line in Los Angeles. Tom, you're on KABC. Hello, you guys. You're on with Sam Frank. Hi, Sam. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, 
my question is about Champagne for Caesar, which is one of my favorite comedies in any medium. And this is Tom Hatton, right? Oh, get out of here. You're hey, Tom that. Hatton. I how are you, call, Tom? I have to call you, Ray, before you say goodbye. I, I can't tell you how broken up I am that you're leaving, but uh, we won't talk about that. Well, I'm going to get some sleep. Think about that. But uh, listen, seriously, Champagne for Caesar is such a funny movie, and but uh, I was very surprised, really, that to find him in it because it was you know low budget, and you can tell the sets are about to fall over. And uh, Barbara Britton was the leading lady, and she wasn't exactly, you know, the the biggest female name in the world. Uh, how did that happen, Sam? Well, Coleman was looking for worthwhile scripts after winning his Oscar for A Double Life, and Harry Popkin had just made the movie DOA right. and was looking for something lighter. So he offered Coleman a contract, $25,000 to start with, and $75,000 in supplemental fees plus a percentage of the gross. Ah. Popkin cheated him out of it. <laughs> Coleman took him to court, and in 1952, Coleman sold his, his, his sold the case to a professional litigator for cents on the dollar. Popkin cheated Vincent Price and Celeste Home and Art Linkletter, all of them on their on their payments for the movie, and sold it to the to the to the Late Show very quickly after its original release in 1950. Well, that of course is why in the early 50s uh, that was one of the first good movies that anybody saw. They also did it on radio in October of 1950 on wow. Screen Guild Theater. I'll be darned. On ABC. Now the Popkins heirs who are listening are not going to you know, fight you and, and, and sue you for saying that Pop was a, uh, was a crook? No, because it's well-documented. Okay. Anyway, Sam, I, you know very much that I uh, enjoy your critiques, not just of what Coleman, and, but, uh, you know, I've seen your stuff in the New York Times, and I'm not your agent, but uh, I think you're a terrific uh, writer, and I wish you good luck with the book. And thank, thank you very much. And, uh, Ray, uh, you stay in touch, will you? I'll you do it, Tom. Be in the broadcast. Yeah, we'll see each other. Okay, kiddo. Take care. Thank you, Tom. Tom Hatton. All right, that concludes this hour. My guest, Sam Frank. We've been talking about Ronald Coleman and the forthcoming bio bibliography. This is 790 KBC Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. Los Angeles. Oh, Vaughn. Now, the station with the most trusted and listened to news organization in the world. 790 KABC. LA's most interesting talk station. 790 KABC. And we're back. Ray Brain with you until 5 this morning. My guest is Sam Frank. We're talking about Ronald Coleman. And he's got a, a new book coming out, soon to be published, uh, after the first of the year. It's a bio-bibliography on Ronald Coleman's life. Oh, I missed something here. You're tugging at my shirt. What time is oh, it? Oh, yes. The 790 KBC Talk Radio time is now 12.05. And I know you want to be talking about the Senate approving the sweeping trade pact, the GATT pact, and the World Trade Organization. We knew it was going to happen. We'll do that a little bit later on. But we're talking about Ronald Coleman here this morning. Uh, and we've got to play high flight. Oh, that, that cut, you know, being a pilot, he perhaps did the consummate uh, performance of, of high flight. Yeah, that was done on a series called Everything for the Boys in 1944, a, a series which was misbegotten, misfired, and a thorough abortion. He and Arch Obler had worked together previously on two shows, The Most Dangerous Game on Arch Obler's Plays and... Uh, a Bundles for Britain special called Hollywood's New Year's with a Heart. But doing two one-shots is different from working together in close quarters for six months 
And by the time everything for the boys, uh, which was uh, a variety show mixed with short shortwave talks with servicemen overseas, what well, by the time it got on the air in January '44, Ronald Coleman and Arch Obler wanted to kill each other. <laughs> Ronnie thought of uh, Obler as a crass vulgarian, and Obler thought of Ronnie as a stuffy martinet. And uh, when I spoke with Obler years ago, Obler uh, had, did not mince words uh, in speaking of his contempt of Coleman. Well, there were a lot of very terrible plays that were done on that show, and after five months, it was that version was canceled and Dick Hames and Helen Forrest came in for a straight musical variety show which lasted 15 months and that's what made Dick Hames a big star but on this particular show called The Ma uh, Man to Remember about a country doctor played by Bob Burns Coleman after the show the, the skit recites High Flight and talks about John Gillespie McGee Jr. Mm -hmm. and we're going to do that here in just a little bit but since, uh, since Tom Hatton called and talked about Champagne for Caesar. I thought we ought to play a little bit of that, huh? Yes. Do you want to uh, promise well, it? Yes, well, that uh, after the movie failed at the box office in the spring of 1950, uh, it took off for the first week or so, but then went right down the tubes uh, for various reasons. Uh, it, it was satirizing quiz shows at a time when quiz shows had just began. It uh, was ahead of its time. Well, Screen Guild Theater on the ABC radio network broadcast locally from KECA. I remember Earl KECA. C Earl, Earl C. <laughs> Anthony, that was before it became KBC. It was mm -hmm. October 5th, 1950, with Vincent Price and Ronald Coleman and Joseph Kearns as an aide-de-camp in a scene in which uh, Beauregard Bottomley meets crackpot soap tycoon Burnbridge Waters. And here it is. Sit down. My time is extremely valuable. <coughs> uh, Mr. Waters, uh, this is Mr. Bottomley. He uh, uh, hopes to join Milady's family. Uh, here is his application, sir. Uh, Ph.D., physicist extraordinary, master's degree at the age of 13, author of neutrons and croutons. <laughs> Mr. Bottomley, all this means one thing to me. You are a dreamer and I am a doer. Do we have that straight? Uh, quite. I have an idea, and I want to know what the average man thinks about it. When we find out what he thinks, we'll change his thinking. Change his thinking. Magnificent. And what I'm about to tell you is very top secret. It ranks with the discovery of electricity and the invention of the wheel. Yes? I am thinking of putting on the market an all-purpose cake of soap that will also be used to clean teeth. <laughs> a sort of a foam at the mouth approach. <laughs> Mr. Bottomley, you would have started tomorrow. <laughs> that would have been fine, sir, but aren't you using rather strange tense? Would have? No, sir, I am not. I cannot stand humor, and you are humorous. What well, was only a pleasantry designed. Jeffers, for... why is he interrupting me? I didn't indicate that I had finished talking, did I? No, sir, I saw no sign of it, sir. Oh, I beg your pardon. Mr. Bottomley, you are the intellectual type, and I despise the intellectual type. You are an improvident grasshopper, and I am an industrious squirrel, and nothing personal. Well, just a moment. What I have to say is quite personal. If you are a squirrel, you're a very nutty one. <laughs> you are also an unmitigated pompous ass, and furthermore... Uh, it's I... uh, no use, Mr. Bottomley. He is no longer on this plane. He cannot hear you. Oh, he can't, eh? Well, then he is, if I may say so, and I would like to see someone stop me. An expensive moron. Shall we steal away now? <laughs> Do I genuflect upon leaving or just face Mecca? <laughs> this way. 
Well, that was a bit from Champagne for Caesar with Vincent Price. And broadcast on the ABC network. 1950. 1950. Yeah. I think in many ways that the radio version is superior because it, it uh, cuts the, uh, the dead weight of the... Uh, the romantic subplot, which was really unnecessary. The movie drops dead for about half an hour when Celeste Holm comes in as an intellectual vamp who tries to uh, distract Coleman from giving correct answers on the quiz show. Mm. But the radio show just sna uh, just made it a lot snappier. Somebody dropped out here, but we had somebody uh, that called in saying that they had worked with uh, Ronald Coleman. I'll tell you what, if uh, you've worked with Ronald Coleman or you know anything about Ronald Coleman, now's your chance to get in. We'd like to hear from you. And we have some open lines. 1-800-222-KABC. Let's take a call from Norman in Tarzana. Norman, you're on KABC with Sam Frank. Go ahead. Yes, good evening. I Ray, congratulations on your retirement. Thank you. I've enjoyed your show through the years. Mr. Frank, um, you did a book called Sex in the Movies, didn't you? Yes, I did. In fact, I was on Ray's show twice talking about it. Once when it was in hardcover, once when it was in paperback. Um, I was curious. I, 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 could, I felt that, that, that a lot of caring and passion went into that book. How long a, a book like that does it take to uh, write? Oh, it took me a... F <laughs> the actual writing of it didn't take nearly as long as watching all those movies, most of which were lousy. Uh, as for caring and passion, well, not really. The, honestly, I wrote that book in order to have a first book credit so I could do the books I really wanted to do, like one on Ronald Coleman. Another one I'm about to sign a contract for with Better Way Books in Cincinnati is called TV Shows on Home Video, the first and only complete guide to more than 10,000 TV shows in the home video market. Uh, Sex in the Movies, uh, people enjoy reading it. Uh, I was glad to be done with it. The actual writing only took a month. Once you've done all the research and watched all the movies and overdosed on lots of bad movies, uh, the writing is fairly easy. Uh, just as the research for this bibliographical reference book paves the way for the biography of Coleman and told me how I could write a book in which Coleman himself tells part of his own life story. When, when will that one... Um the one that you said his name will also be... Well, as soon as I find a publisher for that, but it shouldn't be difficult considering this book will be coming out. And I should think any publisher, may, uh, New York publisher, would, uh, would really love to do an unconventional breakthrough biography in which the, p the dead actor is himself the co-author. I, th I think... And none of, the none of the material has to be cleared for rights. It's all public domain material. I think that's fascinating... I think that's a wonderful idea, and I just wanted to say before I before I got off here, I think it's wonderful um, because I'm, even though it's very obvious that Ronald Coleman was a big star, I think that outside of very few people, maybe like um, Judy Garland, Marilyn Monroe, and a few others, that it's people like you that keep their names alive. That's why I've ri written these books, because he has become neglected and forgotten by the majority of film historians, and the only way a person keeps being remembered is if people like me keep reviving their names, exactly. and people like Ray Bream have me on the air to do it. Exactly. Uh, good luck to you, and, and I wish you, like Mr. Hatton, I miss, wish you the best of luck in your career. All right. Thank you, Norman. Thank you. Bye-bye. Our phone number is 1-800-222-KABC. We're talking about Ronald Coleman tonight with Sam Frank and his forthcoming book, and we'll be back. This is 790 KBC Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. This is.
number is 1-800-222-KABC if you want to talk about Ronald Coleman with my guest Sam Frank. Weather-wise, dense fog out there tonight. Be advised if you're near the coast, it is bad. Low clouds and local dense fog right through uh, the morning hours near the coast. Otherwise, it'll be mostly sunny. Afternoon winds 10 to 15 miles per hour. Highs in the upper 60s to lower 70s. San Fernando, San Gabriel, and San Bernardino Valleys, no fog, mostly clear, light winds, highs in the lower 70s. Gorgeous, and that's the weather. Okay, you're tugging at my sleeve again. What time is it? The 790 KBC Talk Radio Time. 12.20, right on the old Snozzola. <coughs> Thanks, Clarence. That's better than time at the tone any time, right? Uh, we've got... Um, Mort standing by here. I, I want to play something here. Excuse me. I did it to him again. Um, and uh, maybe you can fill us in about uh, the last, the final sequence from the last of the Halls of Ivy. It was the last show, right? That's correct. The last show was June 25th, 1952. Uh, during the last, the first season of the show was nearly done nearly all live. The second was a mixture of live and tape. The third season, all tape. And this was taped in late May of 52, the third and final season. Now and there's there's a, uh, a sequence here. Eddie Gray is in it, and it's played by none other than... Gil Stratton, Jr. How about that? Our Gil Stratton. A lot of people don't know that he used to do character roles. He did a lot of work on radio. Mm -hmm. Him and Sam Edwards and Richard Crenna, that whole gang of young kids at the time. And he played a recurring role in that series named, called Eddie Gray, a young student whose father uh, played in one episode by William Conrad as a gangster. Well, on this episode, the Dr. and Mrs. Hall are off on their summer vacation, and uh, Dr. Hall is upset that no students have come forth to wish him bon voyage. Well, he, he and, uh, and he, Toddy and Vicky get quite a surprise when they encounter a bunch of students on the road doing, who uh, are prepared to do just that, wish them bon voyage for their summer vacation. And he recites the last lines from The Tempest, right? That's correct. His own epitaph. What turned out to be his own epitaph. Really? Yes. Prospero's final lines. Is that right? Interesting. All right, let's take a listen. I'm sorry, my darling. It was just the thought of departing without a friendly pat on the head from at least one student. William, look. What, what, what's going what, on? What? The road's blocked oh. off ahead. Hey there, what's the matter? Something wrong? It's him, it's Dr. Hall. Yes, Dr. Hall, there is something wrong. What is it, Jimmy? What's wrong? Well, the art department was making up a beautiful scroll for us to wish you a wonderful summer and thanks for everything, but some idiot spilled a bottle of ink over it. We talked him out of shooting himself, I don't know why. But all we could do then was stop you on your way and say goodbye. Oh. Well, I... Well, well, thank you. Thank you all very much. You just kept Dr. Hall from shooting himself, too. 
Oh, I haven't got a speech ready, Dr. Hall and Mrs. Hall, but speaking for everybody in this academy of yours, I can say we wish you a wonderfully happy vacation, and if you've got room for it among your luggage, you're taking the affectionate regards of everybody with you. Take care of yourselves because we'll need you in September. May we sing you on your way, sir? Oh, you may indeed. And thank you again. Yeah, not too good now. Or we may decide to stay. <laughs> okay, everybody. The Ivy Alma Mater. For a couple of friends. Oh, me. That was uh, really a, a a great performance by Gil Stratton. I, you know, I, I I've known throughout the years that he played a lot of uh, uh, character roles, and he did suspense and so forth. But this was one of his best. I well, enjoyed that. Well, they get through the whole theme song before getting to Prospero's final lines. Yes. All right. Our phone number is one eight hundred two 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 K A B C, and uh, we'll take Mort in Los Angeles. Mort, you're on K A B C with Sam Frank. Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening. Hi. Very, very interesting. Sam, I have a question. There's an old film, I believe early 30s, that Ronald Coleman made with Kay Francis and... Cinera. Cinera, and it's on Laserdisc from, uh, from Pioneer Video. The name is what? Cinera, C-Y-N-A-R-A. -A. Is that where he's, I think, a member of Parliament? Uh, no, that's The Masquerader. Uh, that's you're you're confusing the two movies which were both, by the way, commercial failures in their time, and for good reasons. In Cinera, he plays an adulterous husband, and the public did not accept Ronald Coleman as being an unfaithful husband. In The Masquerader, he played uh, a drug-addicted member of Parliament and his journalist cousin look-alike, and it was a very thin story, very thin acting, very mechanical acting, and the public just said, fine on both movies, and uh, they dropped dead. Uh, Sam Goldwyn in the early 30s kept on sticking his, his one big romantic star in one creaky Victorian or Edwardian vehicle after another, one stodgy, outmoded drama after another, petrifying his career and uh, almost killing it. And he was being deluged with offers from other studios, but he had signed an exclusive contract with Goldwyn, so he was suffocating. And it was only when Coleman sued Goldwyn for libel over some press statements that Coleman got drunk to make his movies, that he finally uh, breached contract, left Goldwyn, settled out of court, and uh, went to work for Daryl Zanuck and Joe Skank at 20th Century Pictures. Uh, Coleman and Goldwyn were really a mismatch. Uh, they made each other rich and famous, but Goldwyn really didn't know what kinds of classic stories to put Coleman in. Uh, it was only in the middle to late 30s that Coleman really hit his stride as a, uh, as a romantic actor in a variety of roles. I can't say he was a classically trained actor because that wasn't the case. He was a natural actor and he had antecedents in George Coleman the Elder and Younger who were playwrights and censors in uh, 16th century England. In the film where he's the adulterous husband, that may be the one I have in mind, uh -huh. who plays the other woman? Uh, well, the other woman is... Well, see, Juliet Compton plays the mistress, and Elisa Landy plays the wife. 
but Elisa Landy's The Wife is far more appealing than Julia Compton. Well, let me go back then to the Kay Francis film, uh, because it seems to me there is another woman in that film as well. Am yes, I oh, he, he has adultery with a, with a, uh, with a woman. Uh, her name is Phyllis Berry, and uh, she, she, I don't think she ever went anywhere after that movie. Extraordinarily uh, beautiful woman. Mm, she was okay looking. Nigel Bruce in that film. No, he isn't. Could I be confusing two films? You could be confusing several films. Nigel Bruce appeared in Under Two Flags with Coleman. Uh, and, uh, Why do I think I remember Nigel Bruce and perhaps Una Merkel? You're, think, you're thinking of Una Merkel in Bulldog Drummond Strikes Back. People get so many movies and so many titles confused with each other. Interesting. Listen, a couple of thoughts occur to me. So far, you know, you haven't mentioned A Double Life. Well, that was the role for which he won an Oscar as Best Actor for playing a schizophrenic stage actor who plays Othello, comes to believe he's Othello, then strangles Shelley Winters to death, thinking she's Desdemona, then kills himself on stage uh, in penance. And it was a film noir role where he goes over the deep end uh, playing a demonic role. It did win him the Oscar. And after that, his career pre pretty much fizzled out in movies, and that's when he became, uh, uh, for the most part, a radio star. You know, I heard, speaking of radio, I heard uh, Vincent Price interviewed on radio once, and he was asked who his favorite actor was, and I guess we know who the answer, what the answer Well, they did work on Champagne for Caesar and the story of mankind together. And they were pretty good friends. Thank you for the information, and Ray, you will be sorely, sorely missed. Well, that's very kind, Moore. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Our phone number is 1-800-222-KBC. Sam Frank is my guest. He's just completed uh, the uh, manuscript for a new book that is a bio-bibliography on Ronald Coleman. It'll be published right after the first of the year. When? May? May, May or June. May yeah. or June. Yeah. The and, middle of next year. And the place to write is George Butler, he's the editor, mm -hmm. at Greenwood Press at 88 Post Road West. Box 5007, Westport, Connecticut, 06881. Tell George, you heard me on the radio, would like to get dibs on it, uh, on advanced copies when they f come off the press. The book will be priced at 55 or $60, no dust cover, about 12 photos maximum because this is an information book. And uh, I don't set the price, but uh, it'll be well worth it because you will get everything you ever wanted to know, not just about Coleman, but a great deal besides about movie history and radio history. All right. Uh, earlier we were uh, talking about uh, The Tempest, the last part of it, and uh, this was the last of the Halls of Ivy show on radio, June 25th, 1952, and we have the part that includes uh, the part, uh, the lines from The Tempest, and here it is. Uh, William, didn't Shakespeare have a word about this? Oh, yes, my love, in The Tempest. Remember, our revels now are ended. These, our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherits, shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on. And our little life is rounded with a sleep. Good night.
That, of course, uh, you say is on his gravestone. That's his epitaph. That's his epitaph, Prospero's final lines, when Shakespeare stepped out of character and simply said goodbye to his audience for all time. Now, with all these examples of Coleman's voice, the one thing you keep on hearing is a very personable, charming warmth, a civility, a literateness, uh, just a gorgeously poetic voice that was unlike any other in the 20th century. If I were king, we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later on. Also, high flight for my uh, flying buddies and our QB friends out there. High flight coming up with none other than Ronald Coleman doing it. I think it's a good rendition. I think so. I would hate to compete with him. Well, Herbert, <laughs> Herbert Marshall did on one special, uh, did his own reading, which I thought was flat. Yeah. This is 790 KBC Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. KBC. That is their phone number. If you want to talk with Sam Frank, if you um, are planning on driving tonight, be careful along the coast. Dense fog. Widespread fog near the coast with areas of dense fog. And there will be low clouds and local dense fog throughout the morning hours along the coast. Otherwise, mostly sunny. Southwest to west winds 10 to 15 miles per hour. Highs in the upper 60s to lower 70s. San Fernando, San Gabriel, San Bernardino Valleys. No fog, mostly clear. Highs in the upper 70s or lower 70s. And that is our weather. Okay. Now that, that's, nice. that's not bad guitar. I kind of like that kind of guitar. What time is it? The 790 KBC Talk Radio Time is now 12.36. And let's say hello to Mary in Inglewood. Mary, you're on KABC with Sam Frank. Good morning, uh, Ray. Good Hi. morning, Sam. Good morning. Uh, Ray, I, I hope you have a very, very happy retirement. We'll all miss you, but I'm glad you're going to finally be able to get some sleep. Yeah, at last I'm going to be able to get some sleep. And I hope tomorrow night <laughs> is all it should be, a wonderful send-off. Yeah, you. how about that? Uh, Are you going to be there? I wish I could. Oh. I'm more or less a shut-in. I can't get... Oh, well, you're going to be there in spirit, I'll right? be there in spirit. Great. <laughs> Uh, Sam, I wanted to ask you, before Mr. Coleman married Benita Hume, did he have any romances with uh, any of Hollywood's favorite uh, famous actresses? Yes, he had three. The first of which was the ill-fated Thelma Todd in the early 30s. You see, Coleman was married originally in 1919 to a possessive and neurotically jealous actress named Thelma Ray, with whom he had worked on in a play in England. And... Uh, this, this was a woman who had delusions of grandeur about herself. She was evil, vindictive, greedy, and jealous. And when she slapped him in public in Italy while they, he was making a movie in 1924, he walked out on her. And he had, Coleman had affairs, making him technically an adulterer, but all Thelma Ray cared about was getting money out of him. Well, one of the ladies he dated was Thelma Todd in the early 30s. He found her delightful, charming, modern, hip, uh, sensitive, he enjoyed playing classical music to his lady friends and Gilbert and Sullivan and sharing his library with them. Unfortunately, Thelma Todd, as we all know, was mysteriously murdered one night, a murder which has never been solved. It may well have been that he might have married her had she lived. 
He also had a brief affair with Marlena Dietrich. Oh. And that was doomed to failure. In, in her book on her mother, Maria Rivas, um, reprints some uh, journal entries her mother made on Coleman. And it becomes clear in these journal entries that Dietrich was pushy and domineering and uh, simply was pushing Ronnie too far. She made him impotent. He did not want to have sex with her. He was scared by her. She felt that he, f he felt that she was a predator. Of course, she couldn't see this. She was a very judgmental person. All she could see was her own needs. And she expressed astonishment when several months later he took up with Benita Hume and apparently had no sexual difficulties with her. Well, it wasn't a surprise. It was not a surprise if you know Dietrich and Benita Hume, who were very opposite people temperamentally. He also, before Benita had a romance with Mary Astor, oh. before the wow. before before the the uh, uh, her, her sex scandal with playwright George Kaufman, he found her just as refreshing as Thelma Todd, uh, just as attuned to his literary needs. Coleman was a very well self-educated man because he never went to college due to his father dying when he was a teenager. And Mary Astor uh, told Julia Coleman that the reason she didn't marry Ronald Coleman was because she was young and foolish about love at that time. But I do think that she, in retrospect, made the right choice not to marry Ronnie. I don't think he would have been the right husband for her. Benita was willing to set aside her career for him. She was going nowhere in movies, Benita. She was a nice, bubbly actress, but quite frankly, she had no screen presence. Wonderful, gay, debonair personality, and she perfectly complimented Coleman's uh, reserve, which is, can often be mistaken for being cold and aloof. He was a shy man, very shy. And they just hit it off, and Benita was his buffer. She was the sh shoulder he leaned on. She, she was his entry to the world and helped make him more extroverted. So I think theirs was a match truly made in heaven. And even though he had all these famous women he was dating, I think the right woman came along at exactly the right time, although Benita had to force the issue. He wanted to remain a, ba a bachelor forever because of his bad first marriage, but one day she took off on a train and said, I am leaving town. So before she got to her next stop, Ronnie got so panicked that he sent a telegram saying, okay, come back, let's get married. And they went up to San Isidro Ranch and got married in a private ceremony. And they remained married for nearly 20 years until his death. So uh, well, I think... She made him happy. He she made him a wonderful person. She was a terrific person, and that's why they hit it off on the Jack Benny show in the Halls of Ivy, because the Halls of Ivy was a real-life married couple playing a married couple. Uh -huh. And the chemistry was delightful. It came through. One more thing. Uh, he lived here many, many years. Did he become an American citizen? Uh, no, he never did. He was always a resident alien. Is there some reason for that? Yes. Uh, although he had planned to become an American citizen in 1940, Suddenly, the London Blitz happened, and although he was in theory an internationalist, uh, he could, and he never wanted to return to England to live, let alone make movies, he still felt a strong emotional tie to England, and in its hour of need, as Churchill put it, uh, he decided it would be tre uh, he would be acting as a traitor, betraying his country to renounce re allegiance to it when the Germans were pounding them with bombs day and night. So he never became an American citizen. He also, because of that, 
had to pay both American and British taxes. You know, for all these salaries the movie stars were said to make during those years, you've got to remember, Mary, that after Franklin Roosevelt came in, the Congress kept on enacting higher and higher revenue tax acts, mm -hmm. so the celebrities were paying up to two-thirds of their salary in taxes, they also had agencies. The, the top marginal rate was, uh, I think, like 92%? That was later on in the late 40s, early 50s. But in the 1937, for example, between his British and American taxes, Cohen was paying more than 75% uh, income tax. Oh, he, had, he had made a fortune before that with Goldwyn. By 1932, he, his net worth was $2 million. So he made the bulk of his money before those draconian tax rates went into effect and so that when he did radio shows and got five thousand dollars per appearance we'll figure that eighty percent of that went to taxes and alimony and agents fee this this was true of other actors too not all actors had to pay british taxes but a lot of people got divorced had to pay alimony agents fee etc so whittle that all down uh... it's very misleading to say that people made ten thousand dollars a week in hollywood when they had to pay all those high taxes Mary, thank you very much for the call. We have a, um, a clip here from uh, Mr. Coleman's second appearance on the Jack Benny show. This was in 1945. It was the end of the war. Uh, it was uh, December 23rd, 1945. And uh, the butler is played by Mel, Mel Blanc, right? Yes. An incomprehensible English butler. <laughs> and at the end, Ronald Coleman toasts the world following the end of World War II. Very dramatic. Mm hmm Take a listen to this. Oh, oh, that must be the Coleman's now. I'll get it. No, no, Rochester, that's why I got the English butler. Uh, Nottingham, uh, answer the door, please. Uh. <laughs> Good evening. Mr. Benny is expecting us. Oh, give us a give us a call the waiting room, the drawing room. <laughs> Uh, what was that? Uh, come in, sir, come in, sir. I haven't called the waiter from the drawing room. Oh, you're the fellow who sells the tobacco. <laughs> oh, Ronnie, Ronnie, Belita, I'm glad you came so early. Hello, Jack, old boy. So good of you to have us over. Oh, it's a pleasure indeed. Nottingham, take Mr. and Mrs. Coleman's hat, coat, and canoe. <laughs> Jack, I just made an awful mistake. I didn't know you had a second butler. Oh, yes, yes. He's English, you know. But his English accent is so thick. Well, he's been there twice. <laughs> uh, twice, you know. Well, if he ever goes back again, he'll choke to death. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, now here comes the toast following the end of World War II. This is December... 23rd, 1945. And Jack, if you don't mind, I'd like to propose a toast. Of course, Ronnie, we'd love to have you do it. I propose a toast to the world. A world which has just survived the bloodiest and costliest of all human conflicts. A world which was so nearly led back to the dark ages of oppression and slavery by cruel and greedy men who traded in hate. It seems impossible that there could be any more suffering than mankind has just endured. But it is possible, and it will happen, if we lose sight of the lessons so bitterly learned. Let us remember that men everywhere are our neighbors, and their right to life and freedom 
is as precious to them as ours is to us. So here's a toast to all the people in the world. May we, by working together for a lofty purpose and with God's help, achieve the goal that mankind for 20 centuries has striven for. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. Merry So good in uh, the uh, the drama of of poetry, uh, uh, he, he would have an interpretation that nobody else could do. And just think that that speech was written by Benny's comedy writers, which included Milt Josephsberg and George Balzer, yes, and uh, and the others. They wrote a dramatic speech for him. They could do more than comedy. Those writers, yes, indeed, they could. They, they can't. They uh, rose to the occasion. Had George Balzer on one night. I don't know if you heard him. No, I didn't hear him that night. I heard him on the Gaspin show a few uh -huh. months ago. All right, our phone number is 1-800-222-KBC. This is 790-KBC Talk Radio. I'm Ray Breen. My guest, Sam Frank. On the freeway at Garfield. Shall we tango? Our phone number is 1-800-222-KBC. And with us is uh, Sam Frank. Um, you're tugging at my... What are you, what are you doing there? What, what, what is it you want? What time is it? Oh, yes. The 790-KBC talk radio time is now 12.50. That's the most important thing on this radio station. We must give you the correct time. Uh, with us is uh, Sam Frank, who has written the uh, biography on Ronald Coleman. It's actually a bio-bibliography, and it will be coming out yeah, about May or June of next year. But we wanted to get him on while I'm still on, right, Sam? Right. Um, you can slate this any way you want, but if there's any one line or two that is remembered for this man that we're uh, talking about tonight, it has to be this line if I were king. And that's the movie that began my love affair with him. Really? In October of 1965, I came, when I came home from school one day, I looked on the TV guide, and I saw If I Were King was on the air. I didn't know what the movie was about. All I knew was it starred Ronald Coleman, and I had just discovered him a few months earlier. So I told my mother, my God, Ronald Coleman's on dash to her bedroom, just missed the opening credits, and was swept away by a uh, romantic adventure drama set in 15th century France in which he plays the poet, beggar, thief, uh, murderer Francois Villon. And uh, I had no idea what the movie was about, but all I knew was that it was a skillfully done movie written by Preston Sturges from the play by Justin Huntley McCarthy. And the scene that made me fall in love with him, that, that told me that Coleman was no, like no other leading man, was when... Francois Villon follows lady-in-waiting to the Queen, Catherine de Vaucelles, outside the Notre Dame Cathedral. And instead of, instead of trying to seduce her with sarcastic wit, as Clark Gable might have done, he seduced her with poetry. And that was the turning point for me, and that's the scene we have here. I was afraid you'd gone. I've never seen you before in my life. Ah, but you've forgotten my dreams. I dreamt of you always. Each night we've roamed the starry way together. Each morning I wake with despair in my heart to realize that 
realize no mortal could be so fair. Yet here you are, the loveliest lady this side of heaven. I find to my shame, my dreams have done you less than justice. Oh, my lady, my lady, I eat and drink thinking only of you. Wherever I look, I see you only. I had better manners, I'd keep this to myself, but you see, I have no manners. I do indeed. Ah, but we are as we are. For what purpose, no one knows. Perhaps, perhaps I was born to inhale the perfume of your hair and to exhale the music of the ages. Uh, may I, may I read you a poem? No. Oh, thank you, my lady. If I were king, ah, love, if I were king, what tributary nations would I bring to stoop before your scepter? Poetry, didn't he? He loved poetry a great deal, and his favorite poet was Shakespeare, following that Lewis Carroll and Robert Louis Stevenson. That particular poem, though, was written by Justin Huntley McCarthy, uh, not by Francois Villon. Mm. And The Lady in Waiting, by the way, was played by Francis D., who at the time uh, was married to, Fran to Joel McRae. And when I interviewed her a few years ago, I asked her if she'd had much to do with Ronnie, aside from acting on the screen. She said, no, as soon as she was done with her role. She would go out to Malibu because she was raising two young kids, including Joel McRae Jr., Jody McRae. And she was more concerned with uh, getting back to her kids than anything else. Uh, she told me he was a professional man, knew his stuff. And uh, Frank Lloyd, the director, who had uh, a few years earlier directed The Magnificent Mutiny on the Bounty, simply set the scene for them and let the actors do their job. You know, most often... Back in those days, movie directors were, were functioned like traffic cops. They made sure that the actors knew their lines, the setups were all fine. Uh, Two-thirds of the time was spent lighting and camera setups. We had some great directors, but more often, if a really great director is someone who knows when just to let an actor do his stuff and act. Let's say hello to Alex in Downey. Alex, you're on KEBC with Sam Frank. Yes, good morning, Ray. Good morning. Boy, you've got another real good show. This is fascinating. This Sam Frank is fascinating, the way he has all this information. Tell the publishers that. That book when it comes out. Which book? Oh, this one? Oh, uh, it, book, you'll, you'll have to go to B. Dalton or Crown to special order it because it, it won't be available to most bookstores. This is a specialized academic book. Uh, they'll print at first a thousand copies, and if they've got enough orders from beyond their mainstays, which are college libraries and public libraries, they'll gladly sell it to the general public. Uh, it's, it was a massive undertaking for me because I wanted people to get all the credits, they, credits and details they possibly could. Most movies back in the 30s and 40s had opening credits that ran 60 to 90 seconds tops, and if they didn't, uh, some movies had cast at the end for about 30 seconds. Otherwise, when a movie said the end, it meant it. Remember those days? Oh, yeah. Today, you got seven or eight-minute credits that include the caterers. Well, you better tell this fellow I'm 104, and he's not. Ah. 
Okay, I remember those movies very well. First hand, Sam. Uh, really? Yeah. Well, how old are you? And I'll tell you, you're in excellent company there with Ray Breen, which I'm sure you know you wouldn't be there. I've been on Ray's show twice before. I know you have. And uh, listen, Alex, next hour, High Flight. Oh, boy. As done by Ronald Coleman. You know, Ray knows that I really love poetry, and I recite it all the time on the air. Once well, in a while on KABC Radio. Well, Coleman, for all his skills as a, with a, his poetic voice, uh, wasn't always up to the occasion. In 1956, he recorded at his home in Santa Barbara the, collect, the complete sonnets of William Shakespeare for audio books. Book, books on record or books on tape was an unheard of thing at that time, and they were put on 16 RPM records. And call, frankly, his reading of the sonnets of Shakespeare is flat, boring, and monotonous. I'll tell you why. Because Coleman went for the iambic pentameter. He went for the rhythm. He didn't go for the substance and meaning. He didn't act, perform the poems. He just read them. Well, he, he was more of a poet than an actor. And I have his poems on 75 RPM records way back to the early uh, 30s. Uh, 78, not 75. Sorry? 78. 78. You're right. <laughs> what, which poems are these? Uh, he he uh, recited poems from... Kipling, Kipling's If, specifically. What recording is this? I never heard of this. Oh, yeah. Ronald Coleman, I've got him back into, to, to the early uh, 30s. Really? And, yeah, and late 20s, on 78, Ray's right, 78. But, you know, this guy... Would you, would you please write me care of Ray and tell me what these records are, because I've never heard of them? Be delighted to do See, that. I, I never ran into this in all my research. I'm sorry? I never ran into this. This is the first I've heard of it. Ray, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Uh, Ronald Coleman has been reciting poetry. Uh, well, I really don't know. I didn't know that he had 78 oh, yeah. times. Oh, yeah. yeah. As far as I know, his first recording, commercial recordings, were in 1941 for A Christmas Carol. Oh. I've never heard of this. Much earlier than that. Well, write to me, care of Ray Bream, or I'll give, you, I'll give you my post office box. That's better. My post office box is P.O.B. 417, Los Angeles 90078. That's P.O. Box 417, Los Angeles 90078. Would you please send me the information? Uh, you really give thrown me a surprise. Really? Yes. Well, I'll, I'll be glad to do it. Post office Please. box 417, LA 90078. Right. All right, I'll do that. And, Ray, I'm not going to be able to get to your party because they ran out of tickets before I got to them. Oh, boy. However, my spirit will be with you. That's the that's the spirit. i got to go, Alex. And I know you got to go because so, I'm looking at the time, and your frog should croak right about this. <laughs> I'll see you later. Bye-bye. Right, We'll be back right after the 1 o'clock news with Sam Frank talking about Ronald Coleman. This is 790 KBC Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. KABC Los Angeles. It's 1 o'clock. Now, the station with the most trusted and listened to news organization in the world. 790 KABC. L.A.'s most interesting talk station. All right, we're back again. Ray Bream with you until 5 this morning. Sam Frank is my guest. We're talking about Ronald Coleman. Maybe somebody in our uh, Hollywood audience has some 
thoughts about Ronald Coleman. Maybe they worked with Ronald Coleman. I'm sure that there are still people alive that uh, did uh, work with Ronald Coleman. If so, I hope they'll call. We've got some open lines. 1-800-222-KABC. One thing I'd like to bring up is why Ronald Coleman has been neglected by film critics and film historians and biographers and why publishers are loath to do a biography I, of him. Why? Because the anti-hero became king after World War II. We had Bogart, we had James Dean, we had Marlon Brando. And today their offspring includes Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Jean-Claude Van Damme all the muscle-bound, ass-kicking heroes in the action movies. And we prefer, and Americans prefer people who go around kicking butt and, and killing people to those who are uh, gentlemen adventurers. Coleman does not fit in with the contemporary mainstream of American movie making. Yes, we do have thoughtful movies occasionally from uh, Miramax and the Merchant Ivory team, movies like Shadowlands and Remains of the Day and The Age of Innocence, but those are the exceptions, not the rule. And if, so, if, we're Col if Coleman were around today, he would be out of place, would he not? Not, I, 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 not I, quite. I, Anthony Hopkins has taken Coleman's place really? in movies like Remains of the Day and Shadowlands uh, and other movies. And Daniel Day-Lewis in The Age of Innocence, well, had that movie been made in the 1920s, Coleman would have been the star. Those three movies are the kinds of roles that Coleman would have played had he, uh, had he been, they'd been around at that time. Shadowlands is the story of C.S. Lewis, by the way, the, uh, the British novelist and lecturer, who, by the way, wrote a science fiction book uh, called Paralandra, which Coleman once wanted to produce in the late 40s, a science fiction novel. But Anthony Hopkins, Sir Anthony Hopkins, has become today's equivalent to Ronald Coleman, especially with his voice. And Daniel Day-Lewis, when he plays more sophisticated roles, is very Coleman-like. So we, we have his would-be successors, but they are not nearly as popular as the, uh, the brainless types on screen. We, we, we prefer the anti-hero to, to a man who lives by values of integrity and idealism and fair play and a code of honor. Uh, he believed in, uh, in old school values. All right, let's uh, go to the uh, phones here. We've got Dell on the line in Mission Hills. Dell, you're on KABC. Good morning. Dell, you're on KABC. Uh, wait a minute. We'll try it one more time. All right. Let's try it now. Dell. Yeah. Na now we're on. Go ahead. You're on KABC. Okay. Hi, Ray. Hi. And Sam. Hello. Uh, what is Dell short for? Beg your pardon? What is, what is Dell short for? Uh, my maiden name initials. Oh. It, it's not a man, honest. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, what I was wondering about, I remember someplace way in the dim past where... Ronald Coleman made a movie with Greer Garson, and he had amnesia. Random Harvest. Oh, I never could remember the name of that. Well, that's on home video, too. Oh. And, uh, yes, he had a fine time making that movie, and they did it a couple times on Lux Radio Theater. I am not a big fan of that movie. The first hour is an elegant romantic fantasy about this amnesiac soldier who meets and marries a uh, music hall queen, and they settle down in a British suburb with a, with, a, with, a, with a cottage and a proverbial white picket fence and have a child. And then he goes to London to seek employment at a newspaper, and he's hit by a taxi. His memory comes back. And it's at that point, 55 minutes into the movie, 
that suddenly it becomes a dreary soap opera where he chases his past. And frankly, I find the second half of the movie, for the most part, very boring. The, what really made the movie a hit for audiences was at the end when he finally literally unlocks his past by turning a key into the cottage door and all those years finally fall away and he's himself again. But uh, I don't care for that movie. I think it's terribly overrated. It, it works today for audiences, but it's never really grabbed me. It set records at Radio City Music Hall back in 42-43, got him an Oscar nomination for Best Actor, which he lost to uh, James Cagney for a much better performance in Yankee Doodle Dandy. But uh, a lot of people love the movie. I think the first half is terrific. I think the second half is dreary. I just wonder, I never, no, nobody else can ever remember the name of it with me, you know. Well, uh, the, Ray, book, the book is by James Hilton, who also wrote Lost Horizon. Oh, yes, right. Uh, Ray, before you leave, could you please play Carmen Cavallero's Ravel's Bolero for me? I don't know if I have it. Oh, uh, well, I heard you play that other Carmen Cavallero's. Yes, but uh, I'd have to go into my record file to see if I have it. If you got it, I'd sure appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot, and good luck on your big party tomorrow night. All right, thank you, Del. Bye-bye. Uh -huh. Our phone number is 1-800-222-KABC. Uh, in a moment, we'll come back and uh, do um, something from the Halls of Ivy that uh, Don Quinn wrote for uh, the show. Uh, Three Blind Mice, as Kipling might have written it. Yes, it's a, it was a pattern number for a show called Faculty Follies Part 2. And... Uh, if you're familiar with the, the style of Kipling, well, that's how Don Quinn wrote it. It has some interesting comical sound effects, and it's, it's just a hilarious bit. All right, we'll do that as soon as we come back. My guest, Sam Frank, and we're talking about Ronald Coleman. This is 790 KBC Talk Radio. I'm Ray Bream, and you tell them that Ray Bream sent you. Bream sent you. Oh, yes. Seventy six of those trombones. 1-800-222-KBC. And uh, we have Vanessa Brown on the phone, and we'll talk with her very shortly. Uh, looking at the weather, it's uh, foggy out there. If you're uh, traveling PCH around the, uh, the coast area, it's dense fog, really dense. Looking at the weather, low clouds and local dense fog early near the coast, otherwise mostly sunny. The highs to the lower 70s, San Fernando, San Gabriel, and San Bernardino Valleys, no fog, mostly clear, highs in the lower 70s. That is the weather. 
little Mancini there never hurt anybody, right? You know, it's ironic that you just played... Now, hold on, hold on a second. What? It's ironic that you just played Meredith Wilson because during the war years, Meredith Wilson was the composer and conductor on a lot of war bond and That's war right. relief shows that Coleman was on. And uh, did a lot of things for Armed Forces Radio Service. Absolutely. So he and Coleman crossed paths quite often during really? the war. Really? Absolutely. And you'll find it him in the index. Vanessa Brown, um, who calls this show quite often, I might say. She's been a... Uh, uh, a brave brain fan, I guess, for a long time. At least she she calls. Whether she's a fan, I don't know. Uh, she uh, she did things with with Ronald Coleman. Well, first right? first she co-starred with him in the late George Apley, in 1947. She plays Apley's cousin, uh, who is getting married to his son uh, John. Uh, played by Richard Ney. Mm -hmm. And she sings a song in that movie called Sweet Little Marigold, plays at the piano, and Coleman and the rest of the cast join in. Well, several months after the movie was released, uh, there was a new series that came on the air sponsored by Anison called Hollywood Star Preview, and it was meant to be a showcase for up-and-coming talent. And yet, the, uh, two, two of the times that Coleman hosted the show, the talent was far from, from up-and-coming, Vanessa was the first guest on that show on September the 28th, 1947, and she was previously known as Camilla Brind as a quiz kid on the show Quiz Kids. But on this show, she was introduced by Ronnie, and she played in a, uh, drama, a drama called Starlight, Star Bright, written especially for her by Walter Brown Newman. And the clip we're going to hear is the after-show banter where uh, Vanessa steps out of character and they have some after-show chatter. Let's take a listen. Coleman. Ladies and gentlemen, I know you'd like to meet our star of the evening in person. So here she is, Vanessa Brown. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much. That's uh, well deserved, Vanessa. And what's been going on with you since I last saw you? Oh, I've made three pictures at 20th Century Fox, Ronnie. And, uh, Believe it or not, not one of them was Forever Amber. Well, why should that be so incredible? Well, there's so much talk and excitement at Fox about Forever Amber that it, it's difficult to remember that there's anything else going on. Uh, particularly about Linda Darnell being a blonde. Oh, my dear, no matter what the color of her hair, Linda is a dish. <laughs> yes, she certainly is, and I can't wait to see the picture. And, Ronnie, I can't thank you enough for coming down here tonight. I'm very grateful. Oh, it's a pleasure, Vanessa. And just one more thing. What's that? Uh, about Apley. I had to play him rather a stuffed shirt, you know. And, um, well, you don't think, really, now that you know me, uh, that I'm at all, shall we say, stuffed? Oh, Ronnie. You remember the Thanksgiving party during Apley when you were carving the turkey? Uh-huh. Well, as I watched you, I thought, by golly, it's the stuffing that makes the turkey. <laughs> <laughs> well, Vanessa... With my stuffing and your sauce, what about next Thanksgiving together, huh? It's a date. <laughs> Thank you, Vanessa. Good night. All right. Well, I think Vanessa's on the line, and let's say hello to Vanessa. Vanessa, are you there? Hi. How are you? Fine, thank you. And Sam Frank is here. Good. Yes, I, 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 I've been listening to the show. I think you've got a wonderful show. So does th that radio clip bring back some memories, Vanessa? Yes, it does. It, it's really a kick that modern technology allows this to happen. Forty-seven years ago, you did that radio show. A long time ago.
time ago. And 48 years ago, you made the movie. So what are your memories of playing Agnes Willing to your cousin George Apley on the set of the late George Apley at Fox? What do you remember of working with Ronnie? Well, I remember uh, being very, very much in awe of Ronald Coleman and liking him very much at the same time. And one day I asked him, uh, do you know when a take is good? Or, or do you rely on the director? And he said, no, to this day, I don't know when a take is good, and I rely on the director. When you filmed the Thanksgiving sequence, uh, was it, did it have a, a family uh, air about it? Well, you see, Joe Mankiewicz had gone to great uh, lengths to see that we were a family. He, we all had lunch together in the commissary at the same table. And we all um, um, uh, traded jokes, and in other words, he involved us so that we, we knew each other quite well by the time the film was over. Did Ronnie give you any help on playing your character? Did you offer, ask him for any bits no, of advice? No, uh, the thing is that he was very correct. He was always very correct, and uh, the only help he gave in that he was so good himself. In other words, in the New York scenes when we when we we were, we were playing, um, he was he was going to furnish furnish me with new gowns and everything. He was very uh, supportive. In other words, there there were the two of us against the world. That that was the only time that I really felt that there was any kind of uh, relationship between him and me. Otherwise, it was a very correct relationship. In her book on her father, Julia Coleman quotes Edna Best on an anecdote about the church sequence where you get married to Richard Ney. Yeah. And she says that uh, Edna wanted to prove that Ronnie really didn't pay attention to what was going on with his other co-stars. So, she mar uh, so uh, you m marched down the aisle wearing a beard, I think, right? No. Or, or, or Edna did. No. And, uh, and, and he didn't that's notice not it. True. That's not true? No, that's not That's what Edna Best said, that she, no. you, you would put no, on Edna a beard. Was a cut up. Edna, Edna was a real cut up, and, and she, she may have made that up. Oh, really? You also told me that in post-production, Ernst Lubitsch directed some scenes with you and Peggy Cummins to build up Peggy Cummins' role. Yes. Uh, how did Lubitsch's direction differ from Mankiewicz's, if at all? Well, we only had, we had two days with two or three days with Lubitsch. And um, the, the, difference, the difference was that I, well, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, they, they were two different people. Lubitsch's approach was different. Um, but nevertheless, he had to keep those scenes but he had to keep it consistent with the rest of the movie. Yeah, the thing was, we, we were in a dressing room together, Lubitsch and, and Peggy and I. And um, he said, um, now, uh, will you explain, uh, will you do, do, explain yourselves a little bit and then do the part? And then he, he had us do the part. And then he told me that I should pause afterwards and not before. In other words, he, he told me exactly where, where to pause and how to get an effect. And then he turned to Peggy and he said uh, about me, now that's a thinking actress. And that was meant to be a compliment, and that was meant a great deal to me because nobody had thought it was an advantage to be a thinking actress. Well, Vanessa, we wanted to uh, call you this morning because uh, since we're talking about uh, Ronald Coleman, we couldn't leave you out.
Listen, Ray, I am so sorry that you're leaving. You have no idea. Well, uh, are you coming to the bash? I can't make the bash, uh, but I, I will be there in spirit. Wonderful. And I want to follow wherever you are going someplace, because I know, Ray, you're not going to retire to Malibu. You're just you, not You, you think I'm not going to go smell the roses and take care of my airplane? And I, I don't think so. Groom my house? Oh, come on, Ray. You can't <laughs> quit. Uh, look, I don't want to be brainwashed anymore. <laughs> I'm going to leave the newspapers out in the driveway to get yellow and soggy and wet and feel no guilt pains. Yeah. Well, I, I want you to, uh, to, uh, to know that you've done uh, Sam a remarkable honor in having him on right now towards the end when it's so, uh, time is so pressing. But Sam has been working on this thing for years. I know he has. And I think that he really deserves an accolade for sticking by his guns and, and saying that he is going to do Ronald Coleman's life. Well, it deserves a lot of sales. Thank you, Vanessa. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. She calls this pro she's been a regular on this program for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Our phone number is 1-800-222-KBC. In a moment, we'll go to Palm Springs. We've got Gary on the line who wants to talk about the tale of two cities. This is 790 KBC Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. Might be my next job if I can just do it right. Oh, wait a minute. <clears throat> ho, ho, ho. And for the latest on rush hour recipes, here's the Green Giant Grocery Copter One. Well, it looks like everyone's going Italian tonight, Susan, as shoppers take the Green Giant Garden Herb Pasta Accents off-ramp to try the easy Italian supper recipe on the package. By just adding ground beef and spaghetti sauce, a delicious pasta and vegetable dinner is less than 20 minutes away. Once again, Green Giant makes healthier eating easy. Bon appetito. Ho, ho, ho. Green Giant. Ho, ho, ho. I'm, I'm getting it. I'm, I'm going to get that down yet. At Stater Brothers, they want to make it easy for you to get the best selection of foods at the lowest prices. So visit your neighborhood Stater Brothers market for great values and selections in every department. And while you're shopping at Stater Brothers, be sure to look for Green Giant Pasta Accents and their new convenient rush hour recipes. Stater Brothers makes it easy to bring great values home. Stater Brothers, your low-price leader in the heartland and the home of great value and service. Ho, ho, ho. All right, let me... <laughs> there, there's a job for me out there. I know that. I can do the ho, ho, ho bit for the Green Giant. Uh, do you or uh, does someone you know play the piano? Have you been waiting to learn but are waiting for the right opportunity to purchase a piano? Well, there couldn't be a better time than the holidays to bring real music into your home. There'll be a piano sale at Pepperdine University. Vertical pianos, grands, and digitals will all be available. And uh, many have been used less than one year. Brands will include Kauai, we've got Steinway, Baldwin, Yamaha, and others. This liquidation sale will be held at the music department on campus. Now, this is your opportunity to take advantage of the piano liquidation at Pepperdine University. This sale will include performance, recital, and practice new and used pianos. All pianos will be sold this weekend at Pepperdine University. You can have the opportunity to make a preview appointment by calling area code 310-456-4580. Call now to preview the instruments at 310 area code 456 4580. Make your holiday and the New Year's special. Call the music department at Pepperdine University this weekend only. Call 310 456 4580.
piano there. Thank you, John Wood. Now, about this uh, wind situation. We have no wind, so we can't cast our fate to it at the moment. But we do have a lot of fog. I mean, we have dense fog. I hit it coming in this evening. It's all along the coast, so drive carefully. Uh, looking at uh, the weather forecast, low clouds and local dense fog early near the coast, otherwise mostly sunny. And we're going to have those uh, afternoon southwest to west winds. Highs in the upper 60s to lower 70s. San Fernando, San Gabriel, and San Bernardino Valleys is going to be mostly clear. Lows in the upper 30s to upper 40s throughout the night. And it'll be sunny, afternoon sea breezes. No fog, highs in the 60s to lower 70s. And that is the weather. You're, uh, you're tugging on my pants like, what do you want? What time is it? Oh, yes, the 790K ABC Talk Radio time is now 1.30. Now, if you want to talk about uh, Ronald Coleman, now is your chance. We were talking about uh, three blind mice. This is uh, an excerpt. What, uh, is this from the Halls of Ivy? This is from the Halls Well, hold on a second. Yeah. Yes. Well, this is from the Halls of Ivy. Uh, Don Quinn, who... The, the Halls of Ivy, by the way, was uh, the format of Fibber, McGee, and Molly, which Don Quinn also created. Both shows had in common that they had a married couple mm -hmm. who lived in a particular small town. The opening of each show would start with four or five minutes of banter, and then the main mm -hmm. uh, plot of the week would begin with people dropping by. Only the difference was that Fibber, Fibber McGee, and Molly was sophisticated cornball humor, while the Halls of Ivy was sophisticated, erudite, literate uh, mm -hmm. college humor, and that's how they differed. Don Quinn wanted to create a show he'd be remembered by, but Halls of Ivy only lasted three seasons, whereas Fibber McGee and Molly lasted more than 20. Ironically, Fibber McGee and Molly... Boy, it's hard to say that name, Fibber McGee and Molly. It's one of my favorite shows, by the way. I love to listen to it. I've got 100 shows at home. Uh, that's the better-remembered show. Because the first spin-off, you know... Yes, The Great Gildersleeve. That's right. That was the very first spin-off. Well, occasionally Don Quinn would create patter routines for Coleman on the Halls of Ivy, and this was one of them for a Faculty Folly show in 1952. And uh, what more can I say? It's a funny bit. I wonder if uh, Harlow Wilcox had a hard time saying Fibber, McGee, and Molly. <laughs> well, I'm not an announcer. Some names are just tongue twisters, right? Yes, oh, I know. You asked me all about it. I have a few that I can tell you. All right, let's listen to uh, Three Blind Mice. Now, this is the tale of the Three Blind Mice. As it's known from Madras to Cornwall, from Hyderabad to Serinkapatam, from Simla to Chandaragore. <laughs> and ever they tell the tale anew, as fond of our kith and kin, of the three blind mice. <laughs> and the sin. And the price. And the tales that they paid it in. Reckless, rampant, raging, they ran, ah, for the three and blind. 
hot on the track of Mohammed Din's wife, golden-skinned daughter of Ind. Wife to a farmer, a man of the hills, where the Khyber leads down to Lahore, and the slithering stride of the bitten snowslide is drowned in the bullet train's roar. Deep in the gloom of the shuddering grass, darkling the thickets amid, where the jungle old rolled fold on fold to hide the wrong she did. She who was wife to the man of the hills, with carving knife curving and keen, left three mice. And blind, with three pitiful stumps to show where their tails had been. This is the tale of the three blind mice. As they tell it in Mandalay, where the dawn does all sorts of impossible things. And China's across the bay. Whenever they tell the tale anew, as bond of our kith and kin of the three blind mice. And the sin. And the price. And the tales that they paid it in. A great scene there. I think Kipling would have loved it. Uh, notice that the audience got a real rise out of that cash register both times. <laughs> Indeed. This is done before a live audience at the uh, NBC uh, studio where Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters is. That's right. That's right. Let's uh, go to Palm Springs. We've got Gary on the line. Gary, you're on KABC with Sam Frank. Sam and Ray, great show tonight. Thank you. I enjoy the, the radio clips tonight also. Sam, during that, uh, that great MGM period of the mid-30s, uh, and he did, you know, Tale of Two Cities. Did he feel that was one of his greatest roles? That was the role he most wanted to play. That, I feel, is his acting masterpiece. Uh, I love Lost Horizon. I love If I Were King. I love other parts he played. But this, held, this, this was a special role for him. What made it special was what he called the grand selfless gesture at the end where, Col where Carton redeems his ignoble, worthless existence by sacrificing himself for the woman he loves and he knows he can never have. And when Elizabeth Allen was filming the role with him, uh, when he said he would sacrifice, would he would make any sacrifice uh, for her family ju just to keep her relatives alive, she said it was, uh, how, that she looked away from him because if she did, how could Lucy Manette not fall in love with Sidney Carton and not betray Charles Darnay? Uh, she, I think she's miscast in the role. She has absolutely no character there, but that's the fa fall of Dickens. The, the characters in the part uh, is, is not one of his best novels. It's a good novel, but the characters are not as sharply defined as in other novels like David Copperfield and Nicholas Nickleby. Darnay and Manette are bland characters, and Carton is one of the more interesting peripheral characters in the movie, but his part was built up because Coleman was the star, and he plays it magnificently. And if you compare his technique in playing Sidney Carton with the technique he plays to use play other parts, 
you will see an astounding difference the way he walks, the way he talks, the way he moves. Right. His mannerisms, his inflections are all completely different. It's a masterpiece of acting technique which you never notice because you're involved with the character. You know, they, they made that available in 85 uh, on uh, home video. Yes, and, and the, the videotape version is a gray and gray. It, it's, a, it's a washed out 35 millimeter right. print. Best to get it on Laserdisc. He also did it for Decca Records in the in late 1940s, which is, that record's out of print. Why don't they show that uh, more on TV? They do. It gets shown on TV, TNT quite a bit because Ted Turner owns the rights yeah, to it. Yeah. And it's been colorized. I've been uh, and the colorized version ranges in quality from muddy to very good. Who was the character actor that, uh, when he played the scene in the bar, that he, he tricked into giving the information? Who was that? Oh, that was uh, Walter Catlett as Barsat. Yeah, that was a great... Uh, he also played Jay Worthington Fowlfellow in Pinocchio. Okay. But that was a great interplay between the two. Absolutely. And Ray, let me tell you, in, in, in my past 22 years in radio, you've been an inspiration for me from my days back in, in out of Mexico and San Diego and Southern California, and I'm going to miss you. Well, Gary, that's a very kind thing you said. I appreciate that. And I hope someday one of these years we can get together and talk some music somewhere. Well, why not? Okay, man. Take, Take care of yourself. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Our uh, phone number is 1-800-222-KBC. There is a poem by John Gillespie McGee, Jr. called High Flight. Now, I'm not going to be a Ronald Coleman. I'm not going to do the whole thing, but it starts with, Oh, I have slipped the surly bonds of earth and danced the skies on laughter's silvered wings. Sunward I've climbed and joined the tumbling worth of sun-split clouds and done a hundred things. Now, let's let Ronald do it, okay? This is the way it begins. Humans, we move out across the ocean to bring back with us the voice of an American boy standing on the English coast overlooking Hitler's fortress of Europe. In that same England during the summer of 1940, when Nazi bombs were pouring death and destruction on the people of London town, another American boy, not long out of rugby school, stood and watched one night. His name was John Gillespie McGee, Jr. Marveling at the heroism of the handful of Spitfires fighting against overwhelming odds, he enlisted with the Royal Canadian Air Force and soon became a skilled pilot. John McGee was also a very promising young writer, having won the same poetry prize awarded to the soldier poet of the last war, Rupert Brooke. Today, when the sound of the wings of the United Nations is bringing hope to the world, I would like you to hear something he wrote. He explained in a letter to his family at the time, that it was mostly composed while he was flying at 30,000 feet. He called it high flight. Oh, I have slipped the surly bonds of earth and danced the skies on laughter silvered wings. Sunward I climbed and joined the tumbling mirth of sun-split clouds and done a hundred things you had not dreamed of wheeled and soared and swung high in the sunlit silence. Hovering there, I chased the shouting wind along and flung my eager craft through footless halls of air. Up, up the long, delirious, burning blue, I've topped the wind-swept heights with easy grace, where never lark or even eagle flew. And while with silent, lifting mind I've trod the high, untrespassed sanctity of space, put out my hand and touched the face of God. And that was written by Johnny McGee, American, age 19. Killed in action over England, December the 11th, 1941. Dramatic reading of that. 
as only Coleman could do it. And the music uh, beautifully complemented in the background without being too, too much in the foreground. If, if you listen to that, that music is very light in the background and adds to the emotion of the reading without being overly obvious. Since I have a pilot, obviously, I have a, an attachment to that. If you come into my home, I have a big blown-up copy of it on my wall, under glass, framed with a light on it. And it's nice to uh, hear Coleman reciting it. Indeed. We have some open lines in case you want to talk with Sam Frake. Only a few minutes left, and uh, if there's something you'd like to discuss regarding uh, Ronald Coleman, now's your chance. 1-800-222-KABC. We can get you right on. Let's say hello to Jay in Santa Monica. Jay, you're on KABC with Sam Frank. Good evening, gentlemen. I, uh, I, have had, I had the pleasure many years ago to serve uh, Mr. Coleman and Benita and uh, Mr. Sands, uh, Sanders' uh, dinner at my restaurant. I have a restaurant called Shea Jay's in Santa Monica for the last 35 years. What year was this? This is when he was living up in Santa Barbara. In the mid-50s? I opened in 59. Ah. Well, and uh, well, he used to rendezvous there when he would do, do work in and then a movie or something, and he'd call me, and, and the waitresses just got so thrilled when he'd call with that great voice of his. You opened your restaurant in 59? 1959. Coleman died in 58. Oh, well, did, well, well, I mean, I'm confused then. Did, did George but Sanders marry Benita? Benita uh, Coleman died on May 19, 1958, in Santa Barbara of pneumonia complicated by emphysema and a viral lung infection. Okay. About uh, less than six months later, Benita did marry George Sanders oh. because she didn't want to be alone. Oh, okay. Well, I'm sorry then. Well, Benita and George came in the restaurant. Uh -huh. I'm so sorry that uh, I made, made that mistake. But uh, 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 George, George, Sanders, uh, sorry, George Sanders and, and Ronald sound so much similar when you talk to them. And them in not, not at all. George Sanders... Uh, perfected the art of being the po the pompous uh, sneering heel, uh, and Coleman was the urbane romantic. Their voices sound nothing alike. No, no, no. In, in person, I meant listening to one person's voice and the other person's voice. Well, I guess I guess the years have got me. I, I, maybe my mind's gone. But Ray, I've really enjoyed your your show all these years, and being a, uh, speaking for the night people and the restaurant people. Uh, uh, you know, we really, we're going to miss you. Well, thank you, Jay. That's a good compliment. I appreciate and, uh, that. And thank you. I really enjoyed your show, gentlemen. I love the old clips. I'm 68 years old, and I really enjoyed hearing the shows I used to enjoy 40 years ago. Thank you, Jay. Thanks a lot, and good luck, Ray. All right, bye-bye. You know, at the end of the radio chapter, I do list commercial and archival sources for the radio shows. Where to get them? Where to get them. The archival sources include Spurred Back and Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters, mm -hmm. and the commercial sources include... Uh, Radio, uh, radio yesteryear in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. I give addresses, phone numbers, the kinds of shows that they have, and you call... So this is a reference book as well? Yeah, it's, it's a guidebook. You, you'll find out exactly where all the radio shows are, and about 150 of his 400 radio shows are available commercially and archivally. And if you want to write with an advance order for the book, which will cost 55 or $60, I don't know which yet, you write to George Butler at Greenwood Press, 88... Post Road West, Box 5007, Westport, Connecticut, 06881. That is Greenwood Press, 88 Post Road West, Box 5007, Westport, Connecticut, 06881. Write to George Butler. Tell him I sent you. Uh, the Juggler of Our Lady. This was done for Armed Forces Radio Service, Armed Christmas Christ Day, 1944. Exactly 50, almost exactly 50 years ago. Wow. at the height of the Battle of the Bulge. Let's take a listen. 
On the evening of Christmas Day, when the chapel should have been deserted, one of the monks came running, white-faced and panting with exertion, into the private office of the abbot. He threw open the door without knocking, seized the abbot by the arms. Father, a frightful thing is happening. The most dreadful sacrilege ever to take place is going on right in our own chapel. Come. Together, the two portly men ran down the corridors, burst through a door, and came out on the balcony at the rear of the chapel. The monk pointed down toward the altar. The abbot looked, turned ashen in color. He is mad! For down below, in front of the altar, was Barnaby. He had spread out his strip of carpet, and kneeling reverently upon it, was actually juggling in the air twelve golden balls. He was giving his old performance, and giving it beautifully. And the bright knives, the shining balls, and the tin plate balanced on the tip of his nose. And on his face was a look of adoration and joy. We must seize him at once, cried the abbot, and turned for the door. But at that moment, a light filled the church. A brilliant beam of light coming directly from the altar. And both the monks sank to their knees. For as Barnaby knelt exhausted on the carpet, they saw the statue of the Virgin Mary move. She came down from her pedestal. And coming to where Barnaby knelt, she took the blue hem of her robe and touched it to his forehead gently drying the perspiration that glistened there. Then the light dimmed. And up in the choir balcony, the monks were joined by the brother who had befriended Barnaby. His eyes were moist with joy as he perceived the miracle below. He turned and spoke to the abbot. God has accepted the only gift he had to make. And the abbot slowly nodded. Blessed are the simple in heart, they shall see God. Quite a storyteller, huh? Yes. He had done that three, three previous times on radio with Nelson Eddy as the singing monk. That really? was John Charles Thomas you heard. But those were flat readings. This is telling a story. It's, it's a marvelous Christmas classic, I think. By the way, is, is, any, that, is that available as a, as a whole program? No, it's not available. The Gaspins have played it on their show a couple of times, and you can get it through Spurdback, I think. Mm -hmm. Um... By the way, if anybody wants to write to me directly, my mailing address is P.O. Box 417, Los Angeles, California, 90078. That's P.O. Box 417, L.A., California, 90078. I have in my collection uh, half of the radio shows that Coleman did. Not all of them are great. Some of them he just did for money and did walkthroughs on Lux Radio Theater. But the best of them show a great actor at work who did settle on one particular persona he wanted to convey in movies. But just as Charlie Chaplin and Humphrey Bogart are considered great for the persona they developed, so Ronald Coleman should be considered great for the persona he developed. Why should he be considered any less than them? All right, 1-800-222-KABC if you want to get in before Sam leaves here and talk about uh, Ronald Coleman, whatever. Um, the appearances on the Jack Benny show, I always enjoyed them, and uh, one in particular is about... The Jack Benny song. It starts off where they open a newspaper and the song falls out. But then they go to return the song to Jack Benny, and I think it's uh, rather classic. Let's take a listen. Oh, what's this? What's what? A sheet of music just fell out of the paper. <laughs> oh, a sheet of music? Yes. Let, let me see. Mm, it's a song by Jack Benny. Jack Benny wrote a song? So it seems. What's the name of it? 
When you say I beg your pardon, then I'll come back to you. Oh, I say, now, really. Yes, I'm afraid, really. Uh, listen, listen to this. Uh, when you say I beg your pardon, then I'll come back to you. When you ask me to forgive you, I'll return. Like the swallows at Serrano, return to Capistrano. For you, my heart... Honey. Yes? I'm not sure I heard correctly. Was that like the swallows at Serrano, return to Capistrano? That's what he wrote. That's what the man wrote. He wrote that. <laughs> And then it goes, uh, if you say that you are sorry, then I will understand. Neath the harvest moon, we'll pledge our love anew. What are you joking? Anita, I was never more serious or more nauseated in my life. Let's listen to the rest of it. So, my darling, though we've parted, come back to whence we started. When? Yes, Jack, Jack has a footnote on the bottom saying, yes, whence it's the poetic form of where. <laughs> now, uh, just, just let me finish this. So, my darling, though we've parted, come back to whence we started, and, sweetheart, then I'll come back to you. <laughs> this is the lousiest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and then, of course, the... Uh go to return the song to Jack Benny. They've always had this uh, thing that Coleman never wanted to go to the Jack Benny home. Uh, you had to drag him to the house. But here, here's the returning of the song to Jack Benny. Yes, what the... Ronnie, Benita, I'm so glad to see you. Come on in, come in. Uh, Jack, we, we didn't intend to drop in on you. Now, but, don't bother apologizing. Come on in, come in. No, 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 but we, 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 we only dropped by to... Uh, stop pulling! <laughs> oh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, Jack, we only wanted to return your song. We found it in our morning paper. My song? So that's where it was. Thank you ever so much, Benita. I'm so glad to get it back. Why? <laughs> what? Ronnie, Ronnie. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yes, I imagine you would be glad to get it back. Well, I, I sure am. Well, Jack, we have to be running along. No, 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 Ronnie, now, now, don't go yet. But Jack, we were on our way to see it. I won't take no for an answer. Now, you must come in and visit. After all, I haven't seen you for so long. So long. <laughs> Funny. Oh, yes. The, that, that's what made the Coleman such a sensation on radio, was they were playing a version of themselves that the Benny Riders concocted. <laughs> All right, we'll be back and take more calls in a second. My guest, Sam Frank. We're talking about Ronald Coleman, and he's about to uh, have a published book called The Bio-Bibliography of Coleman. This is 790 KBC Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. <laughs> It sure is. The eyelids are drooping. But as only Les Brown can play it. 
Our phone number is 1-800-222-KBC, and uh, I guess we have to uh, do certain things here. You're tugging at my sleeve. What is it you want to say? What time is it? The 790-KBC Talk Radio time is now 1.57 and 30 seconds. So we've got Frankie on the line in Toluca Lake. Frankie, you're on KBC yeah. with Sam Frank. Yeah, hi, Mr. Bream. Hi, hi. Mr. Frank. Yeah, listen, uh, I don't know whether you ever brought this up uh, because I tuned it late, but in regards to Ronald Coleman's hands, if you notice, in a lot of his films, he kept them in his pockets, and you know why? Why? Because they were small hands, and he, and he was kind of embarrassed by showing them. How do you know? Huh? How do you know? What do you mean, how do I know? I read about this. Where? I forget where. It's been years. But Unless you can tell me where, sir... Uh, you have no evidence to support that, and I've never heard that at all. He's, he, he had well, his hands... The fact in... is, I happen to know that Coleman did have small hands. So, a lot of people have small hands. Oh, he hung up. Mm -hmm. It was a hit-and-run thing. <laughs> Meg, we don't have much time, but uh, good morning to you. Good morning. I won't be able to be with you, love. My scheduling won't allow it, but I'll be there in spirit. And that's the important thing, Meg. I'll talk to you before you leave. Sam, I'm so glad you did this. This man was my favorite actor. I was 17 years old in 1942. And the romantic. That man's eyes were so wondrous, and he had the most sensuous mouth. I, thank you very much. Ray, I would like to thank you for having me on. And thank you, Meg. Yeah. Bye Take bye. care. And bye thank bye. you for 27 and a half years of interesting, informative, exasperating, but never <laughs> dull talk radio. Thank that's you very much for having me on as one of your last guests. And thank you, Sam. And, uh, yeah, that's one thing about talk radio. Usually it's not very dull out there. If you have any kind of an opinion at all, I mean, someone's going to have an opposite opinion, right? Exactly. Looking Thank you forward ever. to your book, Sam. Thank you very much, and happy holidays. Same to you, Ray. Bye-bye. KABC Los Angeles. It's 2 o'clock. Right. We're going to go to the uh, Hannah Messiah from Christmas Eve at 53 on the ABC radio network. And Ronald Coleman does some of the readings through this broadcast. So that's what we got time for. So we're going to listen to Hannah Messiah. The most performed uh, music scores in the world. So stand by. Ladies and gentlemen, with great pleasure, the American Broadcasting Company Radio Network, this Christmas Eve, brings you transcribed from Hollywood, the following feature. kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. This is Ronald Coleman, speaking for the Southern California Oratorio Society in the County of Los Angeles, who, in hallowed tradition on this Christmas tide, presents selections from Handel's Messiah. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified by the Spirit, seen of angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. <laughs> Shall be exalted. Shall be exalted. 
Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. The Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts.
when he appeareth, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner, and who shall stand when he appeareth? When he appeareth, for he is like a Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us.
behold, darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy rising. People that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Be upon his shoulders and his face. 
There were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying,
Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart and the tongue of the dumb shall sing.
everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in who is this king of glory the lord strong and mighty the lord mighty in battle lift up your heads o ye gates and be ye lift up ye everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in who is this king of glory the lord of hosts he is the king of glory
blessing and honor, glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. You have just heard excerpts from Handel's Messiah, which for some 200 years has celebrated in sacred text and music the joyful season of the Nativity. This broadcast has been made possible through the cooperation of the Board of Supervisors of the County of Los Angeles. And here to bring greetings to you from the County of Los Angeles is the Honorable Kenneth Hahn, Supervisor. The County of Los Angeles is grateful for this opportunity of bringing season greetings to you through this presentation of Handel's Messiah, as rendered by the Southern California Oratorio Society. This society is made up of your neighbors and mine, banded together as a choral group to sing just for the joy of singing. And as the Christmas story has been unfolded to us so beautifully this evening, it is the desire of the members of the Board of Supervisors of the County of Los Angeles that the joy experienced in the hearts of men 1,953 years ago may be yours on this day in which we commemorate the birthday of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is Ronald Coleman again. May I express for all of us here our sincerest wishes to you for a happy holiday season. have been listening to the Christmas section of Handel's Messiah, presented by the Southern California Oratorio Society, Frederick Davis, conductor. Soloists, 
were Phyllis Moffat, soprano, Marjorie McKay, alto, William Olvis, tenor, Don Hubler, bass, and Mr. Ronald Coleman. This program was produced by Winton Byrne. Direction and editorial supervision was by Milton Merlin. The Southern California Oratorio Society is organized and functions under the auspices of the Norwalk Parks and Recreation District, Norwalk, California. Your announcer has been Lee Zimmer. This program, a public service feature of the American Broadcasting Company Radio Network, has come to you transcribed from Hollywood. This is ABC Radio Network. Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world is become Jaws the kingdom of our Lord Saturday, and of his Christ, he shall Alt reign forever and ever. Alt King of kings Alt and Lord of Sound lords. Alt Hallelujah. Alt four. One. Two Andals Messiah. Alt Alt Sound Forge Pro 11.1.